0: Hello Unshaken Saints! Are you back for more? At the beginning of last week's lesson, I apologized for taking 2 hours and 45 minutes on the week before and then proceeded to take 3 hours to cover the Constitution of the Church. So much material in there, so dense with doctrine. I never know when I start filming how long the final product will be because I mess up so many times and have to do so many retakes. When I say there's raw footage, Emphasis on the word raw. That's a nice way of saying it. My daughter was watching me video edit one week and she said, You know, Dad, this would go a lot faster if you didn't mess up so often. Point well taken. Uh, I keep dreaming of the week where I'm actually going to do this well the first time. So however long this one takes, uh, I hope that you'll stick with me and break it up into as many different parts that you need. But today we'll be covering section 23 through 26. And it's full of a lot of little revelations for people. Last week was more of the institutional revelations. How is the church supposed to run? And this week is more of the individual revelations. What should you know about your own life and how to navigate it? And even though we're talking about specific people, keep in mind what the Lord says at the end of the revelation for Emma Smith. In section 25, verse 16, where he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you that this is my voice unto all. There's something powerful about seeing someone else's revelation and realizing that it has a message for you as well. In many ways, that's what scripture study is all about. But I do want to spend just a little bit thinking about individualized revelation, whether that's priesthood blessings or patriarchal blessings. I've told you this before, but when my dad was called to be patriarch, I I told him, I said, Dad, I'm so excited for you, but also scared to death at the same time. I can't imagine a more intimidating calling in the church. And he just smiled and he said, Yeah, I can see how you might feel that way. And I thought, Oh how I might feel that way, which means you don't feel that way. That's why you're the patriarch and I'm not. But he showed me the the instruction manual for patriarchs. It's razor thin. The actual portion that instructs a patriarch on how to give the blessing is hardly any longer than the instruction that Melchizedek priesthood holders get in their manual on how to give a priesthood blessing. Remember that one? State the person's name. State the authority of the Melchizedek priesthood. Pronounce a blessing as the Spirit directs and end in the name of Jesus Christ. It's that third one that's the tricky one. Uh, How do I say, how do I know what the Spirit would have me say to this person? Well, for a patriarch, they've had a lot of practice. But think about this for your instructions. State the person's name. State the authority of your priesthood. Pronounce the lineage of the individual. So that's something different. And then the portion as far as following the Spirit, if I remember correctly, it said something like this. Make prophetic pronouncements upon the head of the recipient. And then close in the name of Jesus Christ. And I remember reading that going, no way. Make, oh yeah, just be prophetic. Just make prophetic pronouncements, you know. Just tell them things about themselves that they don't, not even they know. I'm amazed by patriarchal blessings. If this was something that people were just making up, the instruction manual would say something like, make vague and generalized and easily reinterpretable statements upon the head of the recipient. No, it's be prophetic. Be prophetic. And the things that we'll be studying today truly were prophetic for the people who received them. And if it's his voice to them and voice to all, then it's prophetic for us as well. A a patriarchal blessing or a priesthood blessing is so much like the liahona, that the spindles move and the words change with time. Things that I thought the Lord had in mind when I received mine at age 17. I mean, I I went into the patriarch and told him. I, I didn't know him. He didn't know me. And so I figured I'd help him out a little bit. That shows my lack of faith, I suppose. But I, I, I let him know a little bit about myself and told him my game plan from then on out. That I'm going to be doing this in college and then getting this degree. I'm going to be an architect was my plan at the time. And had it all laid out. And sure enough, in that, priesthood, in that patriarchal blessing, one of the things he said to me was that I would build things. And I thought, yep, my, my, my life is going to go according to my plan. That was one of the things that stood out. I'll go ahead and build things. Well, I built some models with my kids. I built a zip line when we lived in Tennessee. Built a rabbit hutch and a dog house. I'm not much of a builder. And no, I didn't end up being an architect. And what I missed at the time when I was 17 years old was surrounding that one little statement about building things were dozens of hints about teaching the gospel and learning the scriptures and helping the youth and building... The lord's kingdom i testify of the inspiration behind those documents that it really is a transcript from heaven that the lord is giving us to help us navigate our life here on earth now what we're going to see today are not patriarchal blessings joseph smith senior joseph's dad became the first patriarch of the church joseph's brother hiram became the second and so there were true patriarchal blessings given in that time What we're seeing today are blessings that Joseph Smith is pronouncing upon the heads of various individuals. But I think some of the principles we can learn today apply so beautifully to blessings that we receive ourselves, whether that's a priesthood blessing or even your patriarchal blessing. In fact, it's interesting because in section 23, it's five mini-revelations. In fact, they were received separately and recorded separately. It was only later, in later editions of the Doctrine and Covenants, that they decided, well, rather than have a bunch of one or two-verse sections, let's have one seven-verse section. But they're being given to five different people. The list is in the section heading. Oliver Cowdery, Hiram Smith, Samuel Smith, Joseph's younger brother, Joseph Smith Sr., and Joseph Knight Sr. Now, four of those five names you should recognize already in the Doctrine and Covenants, because everyone except Samuel Smith has already received a revelation that has since been canonized, which ought to tell us something. It's okay to come back for more. Revelation is not a a one and done. It's not a one size fits all life. You can go back and receive more. In fact, when I taught seminary, there was a student of mine, wonderful young man, who was getting ready to receive his patriarchal blessing. And the the week before the Sunday he was to receive it, he came and told me and we were talking about it and he was so excited. And sure enough, the following week when he came back to seminar, I asked, how did it go? What was it like to receive your patriarchal blessing? And he talked a little bit about it, but by the look on his face, I could tell that he was, I don't know, almost pretending to be more excited about it than he really was. And so when we could really, I don't know, have this heart to heart, I just said, no, really, what? how do you feel about your blessing and once he realized that I that I'd seen past the facade he just kind of sighed and he said I loved it it was so powerful but it's short and I just wanted more I knew the Lord was speaking to me I just wanted him to keep on going so I could understand more about about the life that I needed to live and as we talked about this I eventually said to him well why don't you go get some more then and I remember him just like eyes open like what wait really Can can we do that? Can I I go back to the Patriarch and get, you know, the the sequel?" And I laughed I said, no. But think about it in this way. Where did your Patriarch get that blessing? Who did he get it from? Well, obviously he got it from the Lord. And then I asked the student, don't you have access to him? I know the Patriarch has more experience, as well as a priesthood calling and office to be able to provide this. But you do have access to God you can receive revelation of your own. You can ask the Lord to help you read between the lines of those blessings. And I'm sure that these individuals are doing that on their own as well. But I do love the thought that they've come back to Joseph Smith for more. Please help me understand what I should do, especially now that the church has been organized. That's one big difference between their earlier ones. Is there anything more specific? Now that the church is organized, now that the priesthood has been restored, what would the Lord have me do? They asked, and they received. Now, section 23, verse 1 and 2 is for Oliver Cowdery. The Lord says to him through Joseph, Behold, I speak unto you, Oliver, a few words. And often, that's all we need. Just a few words of guidance from God. Remember, we saw that in that long uh, Oliver Cowdery footnote. That one touch of the finger of God, one ray of light from heaven, one word from the Savior can change a life Well, here they're getting a few words. Behold, thou art blessed, and art under no condemnation. But beware of pride, lest thou shouldst enter into temptation. I love how the Lord bounces back and forth between justice and mercy here. Mercy, thou art under no condemnation. Makes you wonder what Oliver might have been worried about. Uh, Perhaps he was seeking his state and standing before the Lord, just like Joseph had back when he was 17. I often think that we need to be seeking that kind of revelation more often than we do. Usually we seek revelation to know what we should do. Sometimes it's wise to ask for revelation that tells us how we're doing. Having the humility to seek a, Lord, is it I, kind of an experience. Or since we know it's I, a, Lord, is it this, kind of revelation instead. Am I clean? Have I sufficiently repented? Or do I have more or other things to repent of? Oliver, you are under no condemnation. Talk about thou art blessed. Blessed with forgiveness is one of the most powerful revelations we can receive. But then there's that but. You're under no condemnation. But be aware of something. See, in the blessings that we receive, we can receive our state and standing. But we can also have our eyes opened to our blind spots. And often, we're not that blind to them. This is a weakness that you have. This is something to be aware of. And for Oliver, it was pride. It was the problem of pride that eventually led to him leaving the church. And it wasn't until he overcame that pride and humbled himself that he finally chose to return. Wilford Woodruff once overheard a conversation between Joseph and Oliver in which Oliver Cowdery said to Joseph Smith, this is elder two to elder one. If I leave this church, it will fail. To which Joseph responded, Oliver, you try it. And unfortunately, eventually he did. The church did not fail. But Oliver did during that time. And again, it wasn't until he stripped himself of pride that he was able to return. And think about how the Lord puts it. If you don't beware of pride, then you will enter into temptation. It's pride that makes us lower our defenses. It's pride that puts us into harm's way because we convince ourselves that we can handle it. To me, the personification of that kind of pride is Samson. So, I mean, this was the the incredible hulk of the the Israelite army. Nobody could stop him. And yet what's interesting is if you look at the details of Samson, every time he's in a situation that, that he proves his might, it's because he put himself into a situation where he would need it. First time you meet him, he rips apart this lion with his bare hands. But where is he when he's attacked by the lion? In the vineyards of Timnath. Okay, is that supposed to mean anything to me? Well, if you remember that Samson was a Nazarite, someone set apart to be different and dedicated to God. And what's one of the covenants that a Nazarite makes? To never eat or drink anything from the fruit of the vine. And where was Samson? In a vineyard. A Nazarite has no business ever being in a vineyard. And sure enough, he got caught and a lion came out. But I'm Samson. I can handle this. And he did. Well, eventually, with Delilah, he wasn't big enough or strong enough. His pride still put him into that position, but the strength that he'd been so proud of was insufficient to help him get out of it. Pride goeth before the fall, we learn elsewhere. Or as we see here in 23 verse 1, pride leads us into temptation. Perhaps that's what the Lord was getting at in the Lord's Prayer when he asked us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Maybe it's a kind way of encouraging us to overcome our pride. And again, think about the two halves of that. But you're, I know pride is an issue. It's something you've got to, to worry about and overcome. But right now you are under no condemnation. There's a difference between having a weakness and succumbing to it. A difference between being tempted and allowing that temptation to lead you into sin. Remember last week when we talked about that great statement from Martin Luther. Simul justus et peccator, simultaneously just and sinner. You get a sense of that in verse 1. No condemnation, there's the just. Careful about pride, there's the sinner. We are both dust and divinity. And there's a contrary we have to prove when it comes to ourselves. I can be clean, I can be worthy, I can be under no condemnation. And at the same time, I can struggle with pride or with selfishness or vanity or sin of whatever sort. That eustace side, the justness in us, should give us confidence. But that peccator, that weakness side, should give us humility. It's that faith and great anxiety that Jacob talked about. Faith in our forgiveness and anxiety over the weakness that still lays within. Now in verse 2, Oliver is told, Make known thy calling unto the church, and also before the world. And thy heart shall be opened to preach the truth from henceforth and forever. You remember back in section 21 when Oliver Cowdery was called to be the first preacher of this church? He's told to be the first preacher of the church, unto the church, and before the world. And you get that same idea here. Make known thy calling unto the church, that's one audience, and also before the world, that's the other. Apostles still have that dual responsibility. They are out in the world, meeting with world leaders, dedicating nations, opening them to the preaching of the gospel, working with missionaries and so on. But they're also here at home, speaking to the church, general conference, state conferences, firesides and devotionals. It's amazing that they are called to be preachers to the world and to the church all at the same time. And they, like Oliver, preach the truth henceforth and forever. The only release that they get from their calling is the release of death. But in verse 2, the difference here, Oliver's is told to make known thy calling. Now, this one I, I, I was wrestling with, because on the one hand, we don't go around, I don't know, parading our spiritual gifts. So, please avoid that extreme. But on the other extreme, we're not supposed to hide our light under a bushel. So, somewhere in the middle is this idea of, at what point or in what way can I make known my callings unto the church? Now, don't think just of formal calling. We don't have to make that calling known to the church. The church makes that calling known to us. And that formal calling may or may not match the individualized gifts and callings, quote unquote, that the Lord has given us. In fact, sometimes the, the institutional callings are meant to help us grow and develop uh, gifts and talents that our individualized callings aren't, don't, don't contain. You understand what I'm trying? I'm trying to make a difference here between the the callings that we receive through through priesthood leaders to go serve in this specific role and the quote unquote callings that we receive directly from heaven. Something that no priesthood leader needs to ask us to do. It's how we're wired. It's the gifts that we know we've been given. It's one of the things I loved about living in the South among my wonderful evangelical friends because they'd often talk about, well, I, I just feel a calling. And and it's not that their church has this, this incredible structure. Their ecclesiology is different from ours. So it's not like their pastor came and said, I need you to be the youth minister or work with, with the children. They may, but for the most part, it's it's a direct revelation that this evangelical friend has received. I just feel like the Lord would have me do this. And they're doing it. It's an amazing thing. I think I'm grateful for the formality of the callings we have. Because otherwise... I probably wouldn't do hardly any of the things that I've been asked, because many of them are pulling me out of my comfort zone. And that's good. But I think too often I don't know if hiding behind it is the right is the right phrase, but I think sometimes we think, well, I gave it the office, so to speak. I'm giving in my church calling. Well, what about my individual calling? The things that I feel called upon by God directly to accomplish? I met a wonderful young man, a student at BYU-Idaho, who called me and said, Hey, I'd love to have you on my podcast. And I'm just thinking, here's a college kid with a a podcast trying to help his peers maintain their faith. Or another podcast I was invited to do from a wonderful woman in southern Utah that, again, just felt called upon by God. I've, I've never heard a priesthood leader sit somebody down and say, You know, we've been praying and discussing things as a bishopric, and we really want you to start a podcast. No, but it's this individual... I feel like the Lord would have me do something. My grandma would knit stuffed animals to send to children around the world. And when she was in, a, in an assisted living center, she, she got all these wonderful little old ladies and men to, to participate. No, no one asked her to do it, except God. But that's all that she needed. And rather than simply sit in her room alone knitting these stuffed animals, by engaging other people, not only did it bless them, but increase the way that she and they could bless others around the world. Go back to Oliver's counsel. Make known thy calling unto the church and also before the world. There is something to be said for putting yourself out there. That's what somebody said when I first began this channel. And they said, man, that's really brave of you to put yourself out there. And I thought it would maybe be more clueless than brave. It didn't really cross my mind that I was putting myself out there. I just felt like this was a way to teach. And since I couldn't teach in person anymore for COVID, I needed to do something. So if these words to Oliver are God's words to us all, this is how I take it. Can I let my peers, can I let my family, can I let my priesthood leaders know about gifts and callings that the Lord has given me? I think in some ways this is a great way to help the bishop keep a good inventory of his storehouse not in terms of how many cans of beans or or loaves of bread, but what are the gifts and talents of the members of my ward that I can call upon outside of the realm of formal callings to be able to go and make a difference, whether in the church or in the world. We shouldn't do this pridefully, Oliver, that's a concern, beware of that. But in a humble, in a consecrated way, to be able to let people know This is something I feel called of God to be able to do for you. As long as pride isn't a part of it, as long as we're not aspiring to position, as long as we're not telling our priesthood leaders, this is what you're supposed to call me to, then we can live into whatever God is calling us to do outside of formal responsibility. I think there's so much more good that we can do. Now verse 3, the audience shifts to Hiram Smith. Behold, I speak unto you, Hiram, a few words. Again, that's all you need. For thou also art under no condemnation. Again, his state and standing. And thy heart is opened and thy tongue loosed. And thy calling is to exhortation and to strengthen the church continually. Wherefore, thy duty is unto the church forever. And this because of thy family. Amen. Now again, this is not his official patriarchal blessing. But I don't know of a single verse that encapsulates patriarchal blessings better than that one. What's your status before the Lord? No condemnation. What kinds of callings would he have you serve in? Exhortation and strengthening the church. Doing it continually. Do you have specific responsibilities because of your family? Or as we would say with patriarchal blessings, because of your lineage. I love that it's all packed in here. Let's go through them one by one. Look back to that phrase, thy heart is opened and thy tongue loosed. I love the order there. Before you lose your tongue, maybe sh- make sure that your heart is open to receive what it is the Lord would place there. Remember, this is the same audience, Hiram, who back in section 11 was told, before you seek to declare my word, seek to obtain it. Make sure your heart is open to the revelation, the truth, the testimony that God would have you receive. And then once it's there, then go out and declare it you'll be changing others out of your own changed heart. In fact, I love the phrase, thy tongue is loosed. Because back in section 11, how does the Lord say it? Seek not to declare my word, but first seek to obtain my word, just like we said, and then shall your tongue be loosed. Well, it didn't take long. The rock, the church, the the gospel had been restored and it was time to go. Hiram's tongue was loosed and it was never stilled until carthage and then that phrase thy calling is to exhortation and to strengthen the church so many people have been asked to do this to bring forth and establish the cause of my zion or as joseph was told in section 21 to move forward the cause of zion in mighty power for good but think about that specific word exhortation in that 1828 dictionary that's so valuable for doctrine and covenant study to exhort means to encourage, to embolden, to cheer, to advise. The primary sense, Webster says, seems to be to excite or to give strength, spirit, or courage. I think too often we think of exhorting, like we're cracking the whip on somebody. Come on, this is what you should be doing here. But instead of of guilting or shaming someone into obedience, to encourage, to embolden, to inspire, Hiram had a gift for that. And here he's called to use that gift to bless the world. And to do it because of thy family. That's such an interesting statement. Keep an eye out for that when we see these mini revelations to Samuel Smith and to Joseph Smith Sr. In some ways, it's what's the Smith family business? It is exhorting people, inspiring them to goodness. It is to build God's kingdom upon the earth and to strengthen its members continually. I love the idea of a family business when it comes to building the kingdom of our father. I laugh with my brothers. There's four brothers in our family and I come from a long line of teachers. My mom was a teacher. All four of my grandparents were teachers. My uncle's a teacher. I've got aunt. My aunt was a teacher. So many. That's what we do. Halversons teach. And I laugh with my brothers because one's a doctor. One's a lawyer. One's a banker. And I always like, man, you guys sold out for filthy lucre. You gave up on the family business. Well, all three of them are excellent teachers themselves, as well as my sisters. But I love the thought of Hiram. It's like you've got a family responsibility here. And again, if we tie it back into patriarchal blessings, do we have certain responsibilities because of our family, because of our lineage? Now, this is where it gets a little bit tricky. And often with, when I taught seminary especially, and and teenagers were receiving their patriarchal blessings, the vast majority would come back, and if they told me anything, it was like, I'm from the tribe of Ephraim. What does that mean? What am I supposed to do with that? And thankfully, the scriptures do have some clue, some help, as far as what it means to be part of the tribe of Ephraim. The two best places to study specific lineages is the second-to-last chapter of Genesis and the second-to-last chapter of Deuteronomy. That's how I remember it. If I can't remember how many chapters there are just second to last right before Genesis ends, Jacob blesses his 12 sons. And in those blessings, we get a hint as to some of the blessings that God intended for those tribes. And then second to last chapter of Deuteronomy, Moses does something similar blessing the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I'm grateful for those two chapters, but please don't think that they're they're all inclusive. Because many of the tribes that are mentioned and blessed, it's really hard to tell, is, well, does that have anything to do with my tribal inheritance? When Reuben is so told that he is unstable as water, uh, if I'm a Reubenite, is that, does that apply to me? When it speaks of Benjamin as a ravenous wolf, does that apply to me if I'm from the tribe of Benjamin? Uh, probably not. There, there is a difference between the specific lives of the, the 12 sons of Jacob, Some of whom made major mistakes, as opposed to the tribal inheritances of each of the tribes of Israel. If you're from one of the tribes of Joseph, Ephraim or Manasseh, there's some good hints for you. If you're from the tribe of Judah, for you as well. But Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, it's hard to tell from Scripture what that means. And more often than the ones coming from Ephraim saying, What what does that mean? I've had a few students over the years come saying, I'm from Benjamin. What can you tell me? And unfortunately, there's not a lot that I can. If that identity can't be clearly specified because of your father, Gad, Dan, and so forth, then I would say rather than look to father, look to grandfather and great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather. In other words, look to Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. You are part of the house of Israel. You are the seed of Abraham. And your responsibilities are to bless the world. And this because of thy family. In Hiram's case also, it helps us see that it's not just in terms of the family that you come from, but the family that will come from you. So don't just look back and think, oh yeah, I'm a Smith. And Joseph's my brother, and so Joseph's my senior, and and Samuel and all these others. Look forward also. Because what would Hiram Smith's family do? even more than Joseph's, as far as posterity is concerned, exhort and strengthen the church continually. Who was one of Hiram's sons? Joseph F. Smith. Who was his son? Joseph Fielding Smith. Who's another descendant of Hiram Smith that we all know? M. Russell Ballard, president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. There is an incredible lineage, part of Hiram's family, In fact, years ago, I taught a student in seminary, amazing young woman. And we were talking about apostles as we were preparing for general conference once. And this one amazing young woman raised her hand and said, yeah, I just, and and I didn't know anything about this. But she said, you know, my grandpa, and then it hit me, Melissa Ballard. Oh, that Ballard. Okay. At the end of the semester when she gave me a gift of one of Elder Ballard's books that was autographed. Thank you, thank you for teaching my granddaughter. Okay, uh, the family line continues, or just last semester in institute, to teach a Stanford Ballard. Oh, grandpa, yeah, grandpa, and amazing posterity. There is still something about this this beautiful prophecy. This because of thy family, and whether or not you're related to Hiram Smith or related to Ephraim, you are all whether by birth or by adoption, part of the family of the faithful, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We need to live into that responsibility. Now, speaking of the family, verse 4, we move on to Samuel Smith. And Samuel, in some ways, is one of the most underappreciated founding members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He was one of the six that signed his name when it was first organized on April 6th. He was one of the eight witnesses. He was as good as they come. His younger brother, Don Carlos, said of his big brother, Samuel, that he is as faithful as the sun. It always rises. Samuel always comes through. In fact, Mother Smith, Lucy Mack, said that of all her sons, it seemed that Samuel had the greatest gift of healing. There was a time in her life where she was having a hard time seeing. There was some kind of inflammation in the eye that was leaving her partially blind. So she asked her husband and her sons to come and collectively give her a priesthood blessing. And guess who the voice was? Samuel. And as soon as he was done with the blessing and all the hands came off her head, she grabbed a copy of the Book of Mormon and began reading it. She was healed. There's a statue of Samuel Smith at the Provo Missionary Training Center because he was the first official missionary of the Church of Christ. 4,000 miles he walked through the Midwest and New England to serve a mission, and he served multiple missions in his life. On one of those missions, he left copies of the Book of Mormon that eventually found their way into the hands of Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball, two of the most stalwart of the early saints. On another mission, this time in Boston, he and Orson Hyde baptized all kinds of people, but specifically two women that were close friends. They joined the church, they ended up gathering with the saints, and eventually, Samuel Smith married one of them, and his little brother Don Carlos married the other. Yeah, no wonder Don Carlos looked up to his big brother. I owe you my marriage. See all the great blessings that come from missionary service. But even before he proved his willingness to work for the Lord, he worked for his family intensely. I mean, think about his oldest brother, Alvin, has passed away. His two other older brothers, Joseph and Hiram, are constantly working to build God's kingdom, which leaves the next brother, Samuel, to do so much of the temporal labor for his family and on the farm. When the Smith family is up in Palmyra and Joseph is down in harmony, there's a lot of communication that needs to happen between the two areas, and that's 135 miles away. Well, guess who's the, the courier? Guess who does most of the, the driving of the horse and buggy? It's Samuel Smith. On one of those trips, when Samuel is down in harmony, he serves as Joseph's scribe for a brief period on the translation of the Book of Mormon. And then later, guess who it is that brings Oliver Cowdery down to be the, the ultimate scribe of the book? Samuel Smith is the one that's driving the wagon. It was also that same Samuel Smith that drove the wagon back from Carthage to Nauvoo with the bodies of his two big brothers in the back. He was the first one, the first Latter-day Saint to get to Carthage. He had to escape mobs on the way. He was shot at. There was a hole in his hat by the time he got there. Now there were no bullet holes in him but there was a pain in his side that was starting to develop. It got worse and worse. Eventually it was diagnosed as bilious fever. It might have something to do with malaria or some other disease. But 34 days after the death of Joseph and Hiram, Samuel died as well, having lived a life of service and sacrifice to the Lord. I can only imagine what life would have been like for Samuel Smith. To have Joseph and Hiram as your big brothers, but to always wonder if you, if you measure up to them. In fact, Samuel's testimony did not come easily to him. He was the third person baptized in this dispensation, after Joseph and Oliver themselves. But he was not the third person to believe. He had grown up with this family. He would heard all the stories of Joseph between 14 and 17, and 17 to 21. You know, from First Vision to the Angel Moroni to the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. But he just—he still wasn't totally sure. He believed in his brother. He knew he was an honest man. But, ah, is the Book of Mormon true? Is God really restoring his kingdom to the earth? He had been so involved, again, helping Joseph every way that he could, but still without a complete conviction that this really is God's work. It wasn't until May of 1829, same month that the the priesthood was restored, that Samuel finally followed Joseph's example and went out into the woods to pray. I need to know enough of helping from a distance and keeping myself a little bit at bay emotionally or spiritually. I need to know if this is true. It's one thing to be helping my big brother. It's another thing to fully commit myself to serve the Lord. And so he prayed, and he received a testimony of his own, one that never left him. Later in life, Samuel received a blessing from his father. We're going to see in a moment the blessing he receives from his brother here. But the blessing from his father included these words. Thou hast been faithful in all thy days and ministered comfort to thy father's family. Thou hast labored much and toiled hard. Remember, so much of that family responsibility fell upon his head when Joseph and Hiram were occupied in other things. The just shall rise up and call thee a perfect man, the blessing said. And also promised, Thou shalt hear the Lord's voice Samuel, Samuel, thou shalt be equal to thy brethren, to anyone who has ever felt that they are living within someone else's shadow. You can be equal with your brethren, and your sisters, whomever you look up to as you are faithful in your service to the Lord. That was Samuel to a T. Now the blessing that he receives in section 23, verse 4. Behold, I speak a few words unto you, Samuel, For thou also art under no condemnation. And thy calling is to exhortation and to strengthen the church. And thou art not as yet called to preach before the world. Amen. Very similar to the blessings that we've seen already. No condemnation. Exhortation and strengthening the church. This is part of the family business after all. But the last line is what is unique to Samuel. You're not yet called to preach. Most blessings have a timing factor involved. Remember, that was Hiram's experience back in section 11. You're, You're not called yet. Keep preparing yourself. And now this younger brother told similarly. You'll be called. Again, he was the first one formally called to go out and preach. But not yet. We need to keep that in mind as we read and ponder our patriarchal blessing. What blessings are describing my life right now? And what blessings are speaking of things yet to come? I remember once in seminary teaching about patriarchal blessings and holding up a yogurt cup and said, okay, what's the difference? And they're like, huh? What's the difference between a patriarchal blessing and a yogurt cup? Where do I start? Well, what I was looking for was only one of them has an expiration date. Keep faith. Hold out hope. Be patient. All of these blessings and opportunities will come as we are faithful. Now, verse 5 is a blessing for Joseph Smith Sr. And as part of this Smith family, you can probably guess some of what it might contain. Verse 5, Behold, I speak a few words unto you, Joseph, for thou also art under no condemnation. Four for four so far. Everyone's doing well. Thy calling also is to exhortation and to strengthen the church. Every Smith so far in this section has been told that. And this is thy duty from henceforth and forever. Amen. So just like there's no expiration date on certain blessings, there's also no expiration date on certain callings, certain responsibilities. Joseph Smith Sr. was to do this henceforth and forever. And he did until his dying day. Now the final little blessing, few words, is to Joseph Knight Sr. And it's one of the more fascinating of the five. We met Father Knight back in section 12, wonderful man, very self-sacrificing, supporting Joseph temporally, every chance that he could. But notice the the verse for him. Verse 6, Behold, I manifest unto you, Joseph Knight, by these words, that you must take up your cross, into which you must pray vocally before the world, as well as in secret, and in your family, and among your friends, and in all places. Notice what's missing? Everyone else, right at the beginning of their little blessing, is, Thou art under no condemnation. And for Joseph, he doesn't hear that. Well, what am I being condemned for? Well, verse 6 suggests one of them. Are you praying? Remember the brother of Jared had his three-hour tongue lashing for failing to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, this was only one verse, or two verses. uh, So thankfully it didn't last as long for Joseph. But that was one thing you've got to do. I know this is hard for you. I recognize that. I'm calling it your cross. For some of us it seems like what's so hard about praying? get on your knees or get up before a congregation it's not it's not that difficult but for some reason it was for Joseph and certain things you might find easy or can be can be cripplingly hard for someone else. I love that the Lord recognizes that and and though the Lord prays all the time in the New Testament and in the Book of Mormon, but he recognized that for other people it wasn't that simple and so he honors that and calls it Joseph's cross. That cross was nothing compared to the cross of Christ. But for Jesus to to share that word with him, I know this is hard for you, and so I don't want to minimize that difficulty. Can I honor the fact that you are trying against the odds and and see that this is a cross for you? But at the same time, can I call you to Muster your courage and to do what is hard for you. Take up that cross. I took up mine. You can take up yours. Whatever you find so difficult. Now, prayer was only half of that. I love how he expands it to pray vocally before the world. Also to do it in secret, to do it in your family, do it among your friends, do it everywhere. Pray always that you may come off conqueror, we learned back in section 10. The other half, though, is in verse 7. Behold, it is your duty to unite with the true church and give your language to exhortation continually that you may receive the reward of the laborer. Amen. Joseph Knight Sr. was no stranger to the rewards of the laborer. He was a hard worker. He had a, a fairly prosperous farm. He was no Martin Harris in that, but he had enough to be able to provide temporally for Joseph. He knew about laborers' rewards. But the labor of building God's kingdom, of exhorting others continually, well, if there's a a matter of needing to obtain the word before you can declare it, well, you need to join the church before you can build it. And of these four, Joseph Knight Sr. was the only who had not been baptized yet. And again, that might strike us as odd. I mean, he's been supporting Joseph Smith, he's been doing all of this. I mean, he, he, his family is based in Colesville, and was, as we'll find later, the Colesville Saints were like the Navy Seals of the of the first generation of church members. They were awesome. The Knight family is incredible. But Dad, Father Knight, hadn't been baptized yet. Now, it's interesting to see his background. He was, he was a universalist, as far as his religious leanings were concerned. And universalism was a fairly popular uh, denomination at the time, which... I mean, Calvinism was, we talked about last week, the the tulips, right? That was so hardcore on God's predestination and you're damned or unless you're one of the select few that receives this limited atonement. Well, you know how history goes. Instead of correcting, we tend to overcorrect. Well, universalism was the overcorrection of Calvinism. If Calvinism was, God's going to hardly save anybody, universalism was, he'll save everybody. It's a universal salvation. If Calvinism was too much justice and not enough mercy, well, universalism was too much mercy and not enough justice. So you wonder if a guy like Joseph Knight Sr. is thinking, God is good. I mean, look, he's restoring the gospel. This is awesome. I'm, I'm behind Joseph Smith 100%. But why should I even need to be baptized? God saves everyone anyway. Yes, Christ's atonement is universal. But when it comes to exaltation, it is not automatically applied Remember how often he uses marriage as his analogy. There needs to be a covenant relationship. Not just a loving cohabitation. Again, that, that's the, the growing norm in our day. Well, we love each other. We're committed to each other in that way. So, of course, we can live, live together. Well, if you're committed, they get married already. There's something about the formality. Something about the, the promise, the covenant that you are making. That shows an investment in that relationship that mere cohabitation simply cannot match. For Joseph Knight Senior, and for anyone kind of on on the edge, I don't know. God's nice; he'll he'll cover everything. Yes, his his he is nice. His love, his mercy is universal. But it is your duty to unite with the true church. Again, we're trying to balance justice and mercy through all of these. Oliver. Mercy, no condemnation. Justice, beware of pride. Joseph Knight Sr., mercy, the reward of the laborer. Justice, you've got to take up your cross. You need to do these things. At one point, Joseph Knight Sr. himself had said, I had some thoughts to go forward, but I had not read the Book of Mormon, and I wanted to examine a little more. I, being a restorationer, (laughs) I love that, a universalist in his case, and had not examined so much as I wanted to. Does that sound familiar to some of you? An eternal investigator, we used to call them. I understand where Joseph Knight Sr. is coming from. I I haven't read the Book of Mormon yet. I mean, I bought the paper for Oliver to write it down on, but I haven't read it all myself. I just, there's still some more things I want to examine and learn for myself. I get that. And just like we shouldn't rush anybody in, we saw that back in section 20, there needs to be sufficient time for them to understand before they are baptized and confirmed. But that can also be taken too long and feeling like you have to know everything when often you do know enough and Joseph Knight Sr. knew enough. Now, before we turn to section 24, can we jump ahead to section 26? Because to me, this fits really beautifully with the other five little mini revelations that we've already received. Because section 26 is just a two-verse revelation. This one given to Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery, and John Whitmer collectively. But I think it also sheds some light on what we've been talking about so far today. About blessings in general. Especially patriarchal blessings by which we can be guided on what to do with our lives. That's kind of the idea behind section 26. In verse 1, they're told this, Behold, I say unto you that you shall let your time be devoted to... It's a great way to to introduce this. Don't you wish that we had clear direction on that sometimes? Heavenly Father, what should I be doing with my time? Now, in section 26, verse 1, he gives them four things to be devoting their time to. Number one, the studying of the scriptures. I'm a little partial to that. Number two, to preaching. Number three, to confirming the church, specifically in this case at Colesville, the Knight family and surrounding people needed some help. And fourth, to performing your labors on the land such as is required. Now this to me is really interesting to see, again, maybe not the specifics, but generalize them a little bit. And what are the four things that they should be devoting their time to? Studying and preaching, put those two as a pair. And studying the scriptures is bringing the word into you. And then preaching is sending the word out of you. so again, we're seeing obtain the word, there's search the scriptures, and declare the word, there's preach. The study of the scripture was never meant to stop with you. That's kinking the hose. And the Lord, like I've said before, doesn't send much water through a kinked hose. You want to get more out of your scripture study? Then prepare to share it. Believe me, if there's one thing I've learned from doing these videos, I'm amazed at how much more comes into my mind in the very moment. Here I am opening my mouth on camera. It's scary. But to have words come, to have that mouth filled, and have me share things that weren't in my notes aren't on my scriptures, have never been in my head or heart before, but it's coming because someone out there needs it. I am so humbled by that opportunity to be an instrument in the Lord's hands, to be able to preach because I have been studying the scriptures beforehand. Treasure up continually the words of life. That's the first part. And it shall be given you in the very moment that portion that shall be meted to every man. That's the second part. Are we doing both? If you want to be, some of you are better at the studying. You're the book type, the the introvert. That's actually me. I love to just be surrounded by books and study. Others of you are better at the second part, the preaching. You're the extrovert, You're the people person. You just want to connect and talk with other people about things. It's often hard to be both, but to try to develop those talents. If you're the, the extrovert, which makes it easier to talk, but sometimes harder to sit still and listen, oh, it's, so bo- it's so boring. It's a boring, just a book boring. Are you kidding me? That was actually Joseph for you. He was much more of the second than the first. When God called him repeatedly, you gotta spend more time in the scriptures. Translate the Book of Mormon. God, do, do the Joseph translation of the Bible. I mean, constantly having to study. That was harder for him. Others would be the reverse. But I promise, from personal experience, the more you study, the more you will have to preach. And the more power you'll preach it with. And the more you're willing to preach, the more you will get out of your study. Those two go together beautifully. And the second pair goes together beautifully as well. Confirm the church at Colesville. Engage in spiritual things. Help others. And the other part, perform your labors upon the land, such as is required. There's the temporal side. You still have to provide for your family. You still have to grow crops in that, in that day. Or in ours, you still have to earn a living. So if the first half, we're balancing extrovert and introvert, or obtain and declare. In the second pair, we're trying to balance spiritual and temporal responsibilities. Too often, we use whichever of the two we're good at to justify ignoring or not taking sufficiently seriously the thing that we're not so good at do we see both the spiritual and temporal needs of those around us and try to bless them in both areas. It's one of the things I loved about President Monson, that for years, at least since President Kimball's administration, we've focused on this threefold mission of the church, which all tends to be spiritual. Perfect the saints, proclaim the gospel, redeem the dead. In fact, they haven't learned about redeem the dead yet, but do you see the first two in the first two? Perfect the saints, go study your scriptures. Proclaim the gospel, go preach. But what did President Monson add to those three spiritual responsibilities? A fourth. I think we need to be talking more about the fourfold mission of the church. The fourth being caring for the poor and the needy. That was President Monson's life. Yes, he was the president of the church. But in reality, he was a bishop that served since he was 23 until he died. He cared for people's temporal needs. And we need to do the same. Now, Before we finish verse 1, I want to ask a question for you to ponder. Of those four things, would you put them in order of priority? Rank them. Which one comes first, second, third, and fourth? Where would God have you spend your time? Now, if you think about that and wrestle with it for a while, maybe pause the video, I have a feeling you're going to struggle with this, and you should. Because to be honest, there is no right answer. The right answer will change with time. And that actually is the key. Look at how the verse ends. Do all these four things until after ye shall go to the West to hold the next conference. Now, maybe that one just refers to the performing the labors on the land or helping specifically the church members there in Colesville. I mean, studying the scriptures and preaching, you should always be doing. But those other two... Do those at least until after you go west. you got another conference, and and then I'll let you know what to do from there. In fact, that's what he says. And then it shall be made known what you shall do. So you get the sense that the, the first half of this verse is all about these four things you should be devoting your time to. But the way he sums it up at the end, these are the things you'll do for a time. And once you reach that time, I'll let you know what to do from there. It will be made known unto you. And that, I think, is the most important part of all of this. With these four priorities and all the others that are on your plate, the way you've lined up the priorities will change with time. As a missionary, all you do is the spiritual, really. But then you, up until a time that you're released, then you go and you go back to school. And the education becomes all-encompassing until you meet somebody that you're thinking of marrying. And then the social becomes all-encompassing. And hopefully as life goes on, you start to settle into more of a balance between growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. But for a time, those are uh, there's a set priority with a very clear number one. I guess what I'm trying to get across with the help of section 26, verse 1, is to follow the Spirit in what you should be devoting your time to. It's not so much that God is giving you a deadline, although that sometimes happens as well, but rather... This is what you should focus on for now. And then be open to the Spirit's guidance that, and now this is what you should focus on for the next little while. I remember once, years ago, when my wife was Release Society President, and it was a Sunday morning, finally with no meetings. That's rare for a release Society President. And so she opened up her scriptures and was just nestling in for a good read. My wife loves the scriptures. It's one of the things that drew me to her. But as she was opening up her book to begin feasting, the Spirit whispered to her, close the book. And she's like, what? I mean, for most of us, it's the spirit almost yelling at us, please open it, dust it off. But for her, it was, no, now is not the time to be studying the scriptures. And she was like, really? I was looking forward to this. But in tune, she closed her scriptures and said, okay, Heavenly Father, well, if you didn't want me to do that, what did you want me to do? And the answer came very clearly. You need to call sister so-and-so. And this was someone that no one ever thought of calling because she was the one that was always calling everybody else. She was the head of the Compassionate Service Committee at the time. But my wife called her and asked, how are you doing in the midst of all this service to others? How can we serve you? And sure enough, that was exactly what the Lord needed that Relief Society president to do at that moment. It shall be made known what you shall do. One of my favorite memories for my mission was this Le- priesthood leadership meeting for all of the branch presidencies and district presidencies in Puerto Rico at the time. There were no stakes and wards. It was all districts and branches. So, but that was the whole island worth, packed into a chapel in San Juan. And Elder F. Burton Howard of the Seventy came to train them. I got to be there. I was so thrilled. And it was amazing. One of the things that Elder Howard did, basically with the whole priesthood leadership of Puerto Rico in one room, he threw out this question. He said, okay, how, how much time do you guys spend in your callings? And everyone was like, oh, they're kind of doing the math in their head. And I think the average was like 15 to 20 hours a week. I mean, church service is a part-time job, right? And then he said, okay, um, I need a volunteer. And not many people wanted to help, but one intrepid district president from my west said, oh, oh, I, I can come. And so, Presidente, ven acá. And this district president comes to the front and Elder Howard says, how much time do you spend in your calling? And again, it was around 15 to 20 hours a week. And then here was the question, and it got us all thinking. Elder Howard said to Presidente, what if you only had three hours? If you only had three hours a week to serve in your calling, what would you do with that time? And all the wheels were turning in every head. Well, this district president had a, what I considered a pretty impressive answer. He said, three hours? Okay, I and mean, it was a decisive president. He said, I would cut it up into three one-hour chunks. And with one hour, I would have a a church leadership meeting so that hopefully the time could be multiplied by my counselors and the district council and everything else. And say, okay, the church has to run. So within an hour, I would do all the training and delegating and deciding I possibly could and then turn them loose. Now the church is covered. Second hour, I would go on splits with the missionaries. Now I'm sitting in the back going, yes, put us as a priority. Uh, That missionary work, I'm trying to help the church. And I'm trying to share the gospel with those around me. So second hour, I'm out with the missionaries. Third hour, I would have a family home evening because my family matters to me as well. And I thought, inspired answer, presidente, excelente. And by the looks of the other members in the the congregation, they thought, yeah, buena respuesta. But that was not how Elder Howard responded to it. With a total poker face, he just said, oh, so scripture study doesn't matter to you, huh? And all these priesthood leaders who a moment before had been like, oh, si, sí, excelente. All of a sudden were like, oh, que lastima. Uh, and, and this poor district president, actually really quick on his feet, he said, no, no, no. Scripture study would be part of my family home evening. And all the leaders were like, yeah, si, sí, excelente. And then Elder Howard, again, poker face, oh, so temple work doesn't matter to you. And everyone again is like, oh, and it was, it was I was sitting in the back just loving watching this thing unfold. But eventually it got to the point where the district president didn't have a response. And Elder Howard just kind of smiled and he said, Presidente, you did great. I I loved your answers. Honestly, very inspired. That's a good use of three hours. The point I'm trying to make to you and to all of you is that there's never enough time to do everything that God would have you do. Even when you eliminate all the bad from your life, There's not enough time for all the good, and there's a reason for that. You see, if you had time for every good thing, as long as you eliminated the bad, then what has God learned about you? What have you learned about yourself? That you know that good things are better than bad things. Whoa, big deal. It's the good, better, best that we learned from Elder Oaks. It's this, can you you discern what is better than good? And what's the best thing that I could be doing? And a lot of that has to do with time. And with the guidance of the Holy Ghost, it's not just a one and done, let's prioritize things and say, this is how I'm going to structure my days, but rather, Heavenly Father, of all the good things I could and should be doing, what's the best thing for me to do right now? And as we do so, it will be made known unto us. I always got that sense from President Monson especially. With a million things going on in the the world and in the church and in his life, he seemed so, I don't know, unconcerned. That's maybe not the right word. Unintimidated, unflustered by it. It was like, Heavenly Father, what do you want me to do right now? Visit an old folks home? I'm there. Go give a blessing in the hospital? Be happy to. I'll do it on my way home. And instead of getting overwhelmed with this eternal to-do list, it was simply... Wilt thou make it known to me what I should do at this moment?" That's good counsel to live by. One other piece of good counsel at the end of section 26. Verse 2, And all things shall be done by common consent in the church, by much prayer and faith, for all things you shall receive by faith. Amen. Now obviously that verse applies to church decisions. Maybe it can bring some clarity to our individual decisions, too, about where we should dedicate our time. Well, counsel. Is there some common consent, especially when your time uh, overlaps with the times of those that you love? Can we decide together how they should best be occupied? But when it comes to church matters, this is the, I guess the second, but perhaps the clearest first time of, in the church we do things by common consent. Back in section 20, in verse 65, they were told that no one should be ordained to any office without the vote of the church. So there's a hint at common consent, too. And it'll be repeated later on in the Doctrine of Covenants as well. But here, very clearly, all things, common consent. Now, there's a balance there, too. We keep seeing this. We're proving contraries here. And in this one, it's the contrary between hierarchy and democracy, which in some ways parallels the contrary between Catholicism and Protestantism that we talked about last week. You see, by emphasizing common consent here, we're not trying to open the door to inspirational anarchy, but we are trying to keep it away from revelatory tyranny. You see, that's the, the beauty of proving contraries is it keeps the, ex, the dangers at each extreme at bay. And so by, by combining hierarchy and democracy, you are avoiding tyranny, and anarchy. Common consent is a different animal than some kind of a bottom-up, we're all going to decide together what to do. No, it's still leadership from above, but sustaining from below. And that, that to me is a fascinating combination of things. That will take all kinds of prayer on both parties. It will require all kinds of faith from both parties. But as priesthood leaders, seek the Lord's will through their prayer and faith, members of the congregation or of the church as a whole through their and our prayer and faith can come to understand the same revelation confirmed by the same spirit so that we can offer our common consent to to the decisions that have been made by those called to lead. It's an amazing balancing act here and the Lord is trying to help us navigate it well. Now go back to section 24. And unlike what we've seen already, especially in section 23, very individualized revelations that, yes, can apply to all of us as well. Section 24 is a revelation meant much more for the church as a whole. You see, things are getting harder and harder as far as persecution and opposition is concerned. That seems to follow them wherever they go, which should make sense, right? Opposition is the evidence that the truth is at work. And the truth is at work here. So opposition drives them out of Palmyra down to Harmony. Persecution drives them from Harmony up to Fayette. There's been persecution in Colesville around the the Knight family. And as we'll see later, persecution will drive them to Ohio and to Missouri and to Illinois and to Utah. It's wherever the church is, there will be opposition. And with that in mind, I love the last line of the section heading. It says that this revelation and the two that followed were meant to strengthen, encourage, and instruct the saints. Now, remember that word exhort that we kept seeing over and over in those mini revelations in section 23? And that exhort meant to encourage, to embolden, to cheer, to advise. Well, think about this revelation meant to strengthen, encourage, and instruct the members of the church. Here, the Lord himself is giving by way of exhortation. But I love those three. Think of it in this way. To strengthen increases a person's ability. There's the physical help that they need. To encourage helps strengthen their desire. There's the emotional side of things. And to instruct increases their knowledge. There's the mental aspect. Think of that as we study section 24. And in what ways does this revelation and all others that the Lord gives us strengthen, encourage, and instruct. Now this revelation begins in verse 1 with the audience specifically being Joseph and Oliver. As it says, Behold, thou wast called and chosen to write the Book of Mormon, to translate and scribe, and to my ministry. We see in both halves again, to write, there's obtain the word, to my ministry, there's declare my word. It's like we saw in section 26, study the scriptures, that's receive, obtain, and preach, that's declare, give, And in the midst of that, calling and choosing. By the way, another great pair of words. Many are called, few are chosen. Well, Joseph and Oliver, you're both called and chosen to bring the word, write the Book of Mormon, to declare the word, my ministry. And then notice the Lord's sight in all of this. And I have lifted thee up out of thine afflictions and have counseled thee that thou hast been delivered from all thine enemies and thou hast been delivered from the powers of Satan and from darkness. Exclamation point. Do you know that I've been with you through all of this? I know that what you've done in the past, namely bringing forth the Book of Mormon, has brought a a hailstorm of persecution and opposition upon your heads. I get it. But through all of that, I've been with you. And even though I didn't always preserve you against opposition, you felt a lot of it. I did lift you up out of it. And even sometimes when he doesn't lift us up out of it, he does lift us up within it. There are times he delivers us from our trials. And other times he delivers us in them. But either way, the Lord is with us. There's the strengthening side of this. I have counseled thee. Well, there's the instruction side of this. I have told you what to do. And to the degree that you followed my advice and heeded my counsel, you've been delivered. Now, verse 2 says, nevertheless... In fact it says that word twice and neverthelesses are hinge points that he's going down one direction and they go Ooh, nevertheless and he starts going down another direction and nevertheless he comes back in the other this is the bumper bowling analogy that we've used as he's trying to get us into the celestial center of the straight and narrow sometimes he'll be teaching justice and oh nevertheless there's mercy Oh nevertheless there is still justice and he's just trying to help us find that balance in the middle and so In building them up in verse 1, I've counseled you, I've lifted you up, I've delivered you. Verse 2, nevertheless, thou art not excusable in thy transgressions. And just in case that's a little too strong, nevertheless, go thy way and sin no more. I love the balance between justice and mercy that the Lord is trying to strike with them. You see, there's a danger if we kind of mentally or emotionally live our lives in verse 1 and think, wow, look at all the Lord has done for me. He's lifted me out of my afflictions. He's counseled me. He's delivered me. God is so loving and merciful and kind. I'm almost going to join Joseph Knight Sr. as a universalist. Things are good. Well, I need a nevertheless. If I'm over extreme on the mercy side, I'll need a nevertheless to nudge me back to say, even if you've seen God's hand in your life, it doesn't mean you're perfect. I've even thought about this in terms of, well, but if I feel the Holy Ghost, I must, I must be perfectly clean. I must be completely forgiven of all my sins. Well, I've wondered sometimes, in terms of priesthood, for example, if, if someone is blessing someone else and feeling the spirit of that, or teaching and speaking for God and feeling the spirit of that, is it because of their worthiness that they're feeling the Holy Ghost? Or is it because of the worthiness of the people that they are trying to bless or to teach? You see, to me, a better judge of cleanliness is when there's no one else to muddy the water, so to speak. No one else that could be bringing the Spirit through you on the way to them. When it's just you and God, one-on-one, and you're asking, Heavenly Father, how am I doing? What's my state and standing? Can I feel the Spirit to reassure me of my worthiness when there's no one else whose worthiness I might be benefiting from. I I don't know if that makes sense. But I've had some experiences like that where it just felt like I'm not where I want to be, spiritually speaking. And I think the spirit I'm feeling is because of the people I'm serving right now. And is there something more I can be doing to more fully cleanse myself from my own sin? I'm feeling lifted and counseled and delivered. Nevertheless, that does not excuse me from my transgressions. I have to repent of them to become clean. But don't overcorrect. As I'm recognizing justice and feeling my own unworthiness before God, I need to remember to go my way and sin no more. That I have that opportunity, that blessing to be able to do so. It's not blanket amnesty in the first part of that verse, but it's not permanent condemnation in the second even when i sin i can stop and i can go my way better yet i can go the lord's way and sin no more it's always that balance between justice and mercy that we need to strike now there's another balance he'll talk about next and that's the balance between temporal and spiritual we hinted at that with section 26 right you need to go confirm the church in colesville but at the same time you also need to plant your crops and provide for your family Now, the way he says it here, look at verse 3. Magnify thine office. There's the spiritual side. And after thou hast sowed thy fields and secured them. There's the temporal side. Go speedily unto the church which is in Colesville, Fayette, and Manchester. And they shall support thee, and I will bless them, both spiritually and temporally. So that end makes it obvious. I'm trying to help you balance the two. The beginning, I know that's easier said than done. And in fact... It seems that Joseph and Oliver and others weren't doing quite as well at balancing that as they needed to. I and mean, if you look at the date on this revelation, it is July after all. And in northern Pennsylvania, July is a little late in the season to begin sowing and securing your fields. Joseph, you should have planted a while ago. Because, you know, crops can grow while you're doing other more spiritual things. As far as this is the timing of your priorities again, right? Can you at least start this and have it going so then you have time to shift back? And can we plan our days a little bit better so that we can strike this proper balance between the temporal and the spiritual? I know that's hard to do, but to try to be organized to the point that we can both magnify spiritual offices and sow temporal fields, both are going to be necessary. And then this part at the end about the people in Colesville, Fayette, and Manchester supporting thee. Now, that's an interesting twist on this as well, especially for people like Joseph, whose complete time is dedicated to the work of the Lord. You see, even prophets and apostles got to eat. But here the suggestion is, well, if the, the saints in these various branches of the church, if they will provide for you, if they'll support you temporally, then you can support them spiritually. And that's exactly what happens with members of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve today. There is a living allowance given them. Now some are like, wait, they're paid? No, they're not paid for their service. But they have to eat as well. And since their service has become full-time, henceforth and forever, when there's no other way for them to be able to provide for themselves, the Scriptures do say that the laborer is worthy of his hire. We'll see some more details about that in the Doctrine and Covenants. Because without that, then only the rich would be able to serve in those callings. Because the poor, who still have to provide for themselves temporally, would not be able to fulfill a a full-time spiritual responsibility. It's one of the great blessings of a lay ministry when it comes to everyone shy of full-time general authorities. Mission presidents are part of that group as well. Otherwise, who could possibly serve? Are mission presidents being paid to be mission presidents? No. But they are supported by the church so that they can serve at all. Otherwise, many, many of them would not be able to. And again, as we see at the end of verse 3, those who are providing temporally for the prophets, so that the prophets can provide spiritually for them, well, the Lord will also bless them in both areas. They'll be blessed spiritually for the sacrifices that they're making. They'll be blessed spiritually by, directly by the Lord and indirectly through the prophets who they are supporting, right? It goes both ways. This is part of consecration. But at the same time, they will be blessed temporally. The Lord will more than make up for your sacrifices of temporal things as you provide for those who have dedicated their lives full-time to the work of God. Verse 4 and 5, we see another element of that temporal versus spiritual. Verse 4, if they receive thee not... I will send upon them a cursing instead of a blessing. So that's the temporal side. If they don't receive you, if if you can't live, I mean, remember when he was translating the Book of Mormon and they move in with the Whitmers and the Whitmers are receiving them, providing for them so that Joseph can do what only Joseph can do, translate the Book of Mormon. So again, you members in Colesville and Fayette and Manchester slash Palmyra, same area, you need to receive Joseph and help him survive Otherwise, a cursing instead of a blessing. And then five and six, if that was temporal, here's the spiritual. Thou shalt continue in calling upon God in my name, there's Joseph doing this, his spiritual side, and writing the things which shall be given thee by the Comforter. So you're receiving revelation for others. This is part of what's behind the coming forth of the Doctrine and Covenants. And expounding all scriptures unto the church. Not all scripture is self-explanatory. It's one thing to receive it. It's another thing to declare it. It's another thing to explain it. It's not just sharing scripture. Well, what on earth does that mean? That's what what we're trying to do here. It's what Joseph is trying to do. And then verse 6, It shall be given thee in the very moment what thou shalt speak and write. I'll come back to that. And they shall hear it, or I will send unto them a cursing instead of a blessing. So you see how verse 6 ends in the same way that verse 4 ends? Cursings or blessings? And the choice is yours. And remember what Elder Packer has said, we're more often punished by our sins than for them. So the curse is often self-induced. It's not that God has to come in and, and, dis- and, and curse us or destroy us. It's that we've limited his blessings. We've, we've stiff-armed him, kept him at bay. And without his blessings, well, we've cursed ourselves. And in fact, there, the spiritual and temporal come together. If I don't receive Joseph's words, then of course, spiritually speaking, I've cursed myself. But also if I don't receive him and try my best to at least provide for his family's basic needs, then I've cursed myself in that area as well. Not only because God can't bless me for my service or sacrifice, but also I'm limiting what Joseph can give me through his service and sacrifice. In fact, I love the early saints. They are amazing. But if I had one bone to pick with them, if there was something I would in the next life that I would try to gently bring up and say, you know, guys, I wish... You know, reproving be times with sharpness and then showing a greater outpouring of love. I would have simply said, you know, if you guys had provided for Joseph temporally, he's not trying to enrich himself. He's not trying to monetize the word of God. He learned that the hard way when he first saw the gold plates. But to feed his family to have a place to live, especially during these years, if you had done a little bit more to help him so he didn't have to be the one out sowing the seeds and securing the crop, I wonder how much more light and truth and revelation and word of God he could have written and expounded to us. Specifically, I have the Joseph Smith translation in mind. It was never published in his day because he never felt he was fully finished with it. Revelation kept coming when he'd go back over and review and edit and try to make more sense of what God had taught in the past. It really was a line upon line, precept upon precept kind of a blessing. But that takes time. Time that Joseph was often spending out in the fields, planting crops, which almost anyone could have done. But Joseph's out doing it for himself and for his family. When he could have been poring over scripture which not anyone could have done. Only Joseph could have done. I don't want members of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve working some part-time job to be able to make ends meet. Please, I'm I'm happy to contribute. I'm not paying you for your service, but I'm happy to contribute so that you can dedicate your time full-time. That will be a blessing to me far more than any temporal sacrifice I'm making. In, in my tithing or my offerings or anything else. And just to be clear, the, even the living allowances that are given to general authorities don't even come from the tithing of the church. It comes from other sources of income. I do wonder what other treasures we would have had if the saints would have done a little bit more along the lines of these verses in section 24. You see, this is where verse seven and verse nine come in. And, and I love these verses. Again, if we're thinking about personal blessings, whether it's priesthood or patriarchal, God often helps us see our strengths as well as our weaknesses. We saw that back in section 23. But for Joseph himself, look at verse 7. Here's one of your strengths. Thou shalt devote all thy service in Zion. That's the spiritual side. And in this, thou shalt have strength. I'm going to bless you in that area. But then compare it to verse 9. And in temporal labors, thou shalt not have strength. For this is not thy calling. So which of the two should you be emphasizing? End of verse 9. Attend to thy calling, and thou shalt have wherewith to magnify thine office, and to expound all scripture, and continue in laying on of the hands and confirming the churches. You see all the spiritual labor Joseph is responsible for? You've got revelation to receive. You've got scripture to record and to expound. You have hands to lay on. You have churches to confirm. It's going to take all your time and more. And if you'll do your part, and if the saints will do theirs, then as you attend to your spiritual calling, thou shalt have wherewith to magnify thine office temporally. You'll have food on the table provided by others so that you can provide the bread of life to them. And again, this division of labor, I think, is so beautiful because as as Joseph is learning, you have strength in this area, the spiritual you don't have much strength in that other area, the temporal. I sometimes wonder if these words came back to haunt Joseph Smith during the collapse of the Kirtland Safety Society. Now, that was not his fault. And it certainly wasn't his fault, the panic of 1837, when banks across the country were folding. But I do think it's interesting that from the get-go, Joseph is told, in temporal things, you just don't have strength. It's not where your gifts lie. And that's okay. That's why collectively, As we live the law of consecration, as we make our callings known unto the church and to the world, we can see, here's something I can contribute. I don't have this gift. Maybe the Lord can help me develop it. But in the meantime, I do have this one, and I can contribute it to the bishop's storehouse. I've often thought about these two verses in connection with my own father. I remember once years ago being with his dad on a road trip, and my grandpa said, Jared, how's your dad doing? And I'm like, fine. He said, no, no, seriously. How do you think your dad's doing? I'm like, it's dad. I mean, dads don't, dads don't have any problems, right? Dads don't ever worry about anything. That's how clueless I was. Now that I'm a dad, I get just how much is on their mind. But grandpa said, do you think he feels successful in his calling, in his work? Do you think he's, he's feeling like he's supporting his family well? And I I, honestly, it was one of those incredible moments where my dad became three-dimensional to me. I, I, I'm embarrassed to say that he was often left 2D in my mind. It's just dad, he just does his thing. But to have the full, the view of a father of a son, rather than a son to his father. As to my grandpa, this is still his little boy. How do you think he's doing? Now my dad worked his tail off, temporally. Most of my childhood, he had a job with like a two hour commute. Because his job was in a part of LA that he definitely didn't want to raise his family in. And for him to make that level of sacrifice. Whenever I'm caught in traffic, I know I can't complain to my father. He would have no sympathy for me. But to see what he tried to do to provide. And we were a a comfortable, middle-class family. I'm not trying to come across that we were poverty-stricken by any stretch. But there were some tough times. Times that we were banking on my mom's salary as an elementary school teacher. There's the family business, right? To be able to make ends meet. Or my little brothers with their paper out helping to contribute to the family instead of just fill their own wallets. Times when kind people in our ward that knew a little bit more of what my parents were going through temporally were willing to help provide for them and help provide for some of their missionary children, which I'm still grateful for. But to see anytime I think of my father worrying about what he might consider a lack of strength in temporal labors, I will forever be grateful for his incredible strength in spiritual things. That was what I was raised on. The faith of my father and my mother. And I'll take that over a big house or a fancy car. Anytime. I'm not trying to take away anything from those who are blessed in temporal things. With temporal strength. It's amazing to watch those that they just everything they touch turns to gold. President Heber J. Grant was that way. And what a blessing since he was the president of the church through the Depression. You think the Lord called upon him because of some of that temporal strength? But he had spiritual strength to go along with it. I'm grateful for all those who find strength to accomplish temporal labors, whether that's providing for their families or even just pulling off some of the more temporal kinds of things in the church. The logistics behind a stake trek or a youth conference or a girls camp I'm not good at any of that I mean I'll teach I love that I'm grateful for the strength God has given me in spiritual things but boy do I lack a lot of strength in temporal kinds of labors and those that can pull that off who can can plan food for an army I'm amazed at those who can do that we all need each other and we need to recognize where the Lord has blessed us and where he's blessed other people. Now, in the middle of those two verses, right between 7 and 9, he he squeezes this in. And this, again, is part of that strengthening and encouraging and instructing. He says in 8, Be patient in afflictions, for thou shalt have many, but endure them, for lo, I am with thee, even unto the end of thy days. This, to me, is another one of those stepping stones that leads us to Carthage. Remember back in section five, but I'll bless you with eternal life, even if you're slain or section six. Hey, they can't do anything worse to you than what they did to me. It's like, wow, there's all kinds of interesting foreshadowing and and gear yourself up for a hard life. Yes, I will deliver you from enemies and from Satan and from darkness, but that means you're going to be facing enemies and Satan and darkness through much of your life. And Joseph and so many of the early saints did just that. But be patient in them. For I am with thee, and I always will be to the end of your days. I've wondered when he says, For thou shalt have many, is that helpful to know in advance? Uh, would you rather be blindsided by trials when they come, just assuming that life was going to be easy? Or would you like to know in advance that we will have many afflictions? I sometimes wonder just what level of full disclosure there was in pre mortality, when we all shouted for joy, like, Yay, plan of salvation! And it's like, Wait. Sin, suffering, sorrow, death, whatever that is. It was all, it was all theoretical then. Well, now it's, it's material here. We're going through it. Speaking for myself, I do think there is value in knowing in advance that we'll have hard times. In fact, my patriarchal blessing did warn me of those. It didn't tell me specifically what they'd be, but they said there will come days of trial and tribulation. When, my, when I first received that blessing, it was like, whatever, life is good. I, I felt like mortality was, was a, a walk in the park. I remember actually sharing that phrase from my patriarchal blessing with my wife, just to give her the heads up. You are marrying a ticking time bomb, just so you know. I, I have been warned that times will get harder, and they have. But I'm grateful to have been forewarned and foreprepared and forestrengthened by God, knowing that hard times would come. If we thought we signed up for a day at the spa instead of a gym membership, then we're going to want our money back when it comes to our mortal experience. But when we know going in that we will have many afflictions, then it doesn't feel like we're doing something wrong when hard times come. It's, no, this is what we signed up for. I'm here to build spiritual strength. And so no wonder I'm sweating underneath the load. But I do have a spotter who is always with me, even to the end of my days. In fact, that's what the condescension was for, to descend, to be with. That's what con, with, descend, come down means. That's why Christ's atonement brought him perfect empathy. My preparations unto the children of men, as we studied in section 19. Only Jesus can say with complete honesty, this will hurt me more than it hurts you. I know we hear that from people, but I sometimes (laughs) wondered, then this is hurting you a lot. But for the Lord, I am with thee. I will go through those things with you. I've already come down to that level and taken it all upon me. Infinite and eternal agonies. Honestly, by bailing you out or saving you from those things, would it have saved me from those things? I'm willing to go through it with you because I know the effect it will have on you if you are patient and have faith through your trials. I know you saints are going through hard things here and it's only going to get worse. But trust that this is for your good and that I'm with you through all of it. I've seen that with some of my own children's suffering. That so often I am powerless to do anything about it. But I can be with them. I can empathize with them. I can simply be there with them. And the Lord is willing to do all of that with us as well. Now, if the first nine verses are most specifically meant for Joseph and from him for the saints, then verse 10 begins a message for Oliver. Thy brother Oliver shall continue in bearing my name before the world and also to the church. So that's the third time we've seen that focused on for Oliver both home and abroad that's who you're called to preach to and he shall not suppose that he can say enough in my cause and lo I am with him to the end. Now it's interesting to compare that promise of I am with him to Oliver in 10 to the promise to Joseph in 8 of I am with him as well for Joseph I'm with you in your tribulation for Oliver I'm with you in your service. I mean, yes, Oliver would face opposition as well, but never to the, to the point that Joseph did. But Oliver would be very busy bar- bearing his testimony to the world and to the church. I'm grateful that the Lord can be with us when we're going through hard things. And he's with us when we just have a lot of things to do. And these early church leaders would always have a lot of things to do. But notice that middle phrase too in verse 10. He shall not suppose that he can say enough in my cause. Now read between the lines there. And if we saw back in section 23 that pride was a problem for Oliver, what does pride sometimes do? We saw back then that pride can lead to temptation, right? I'm, I'm, I can handle anything. There's the Samson in us. But does pride sometimes also lead us into complacency? Where it's like, I've done enough. You, it, see, to me, we talk about perfectionism in the church, but there's a flip side of that, and it's what I call perfectedism. If perfectionism is, I've got to do more. Perfectedism is, I think I've done enough. Perfectionism is, I, I'll never get there. Perfectedism is, I've already arrived. And again, the, the, my worry for Oliver is, do you get to a point where, look at all that I've done, I've accomplished amazing things, I've, I've put in my time, and here the Lord is gently reminding him, you're never done. I'm with you till the end. Will you be with me till the end? Don't think you can say enough in my cause. Now, please understand, know thyself and figure out which audience you're a part of. If you're part of the the, the so-called already perfected, if perfectedism is your concern, then yes, heed these words. There's more to be done. If you're on the side of the perfectionism, then this verse is not for you. You are already saying probably more than enough and doing more than enough. So don't think, oh, but there's more, there's more. Again, justice and mercy. Which audience are you? Which class do you need to take? Really important to keep that clear. Now, verse 11, also for Oliver, read between the lines and you can still see the the prideful weakness that lies behind this counsel. In me, he shall have glory. And not of himself, whether in weakness or in strength, whether in bonds or free. You picture someone of Oliver's kind of mental makeup. Weakness? Oh, I don't have much of that. Bonds? Oh no. I'm free. I'm strong. I can do everything that I need to. I'm, I'm able. Maybe that's another reason why he needed to fail in translating the Book of Mormon. Took no thought, say it was to ask me. Eh, I don't even know if I need to ask. I mean, I've, I've got this down. No. Have glory in God, not glory in yourself. And then in verse 12, expanding on that, don't think you've said enough. At all times and in all places, he shall open his mouth and declare my gospel as with the voice of a trump, both day and night. And I will give unto him strength such as is not known among men. You see, Oliver, you are strong. And sadly, you recognize that strength. But I'm asking you to do something that will require strength far beyond your own. You see, even the proud have kind of a a max level. This is all I can give. And often God is trying to stretch us into the beyond where only his strength will carry us through. But it's only our humility that can tap into that level of strength. If we're to speak at all times in all places, if it's the voice of a trump, that's more than I can muster on my own. I will need to seek God's strength. But when it comes, I will have him to glory in instead of in me. Now, from verse 13 to the end of this section, we're going to see some more clues as to some principles we need to understand and and follow as we are declaring God's word with that voice of a trump, especially when we're doing it in a world that is somewhat opposed to it or very opposed to it. You see, if Oliver is going to share the gospel in spite of opposition around him, what are some things he's going to need to know? Verse 13, Require not miracles, except I shall command you, except casting out devils, healing the sick, and against poisonous serpents, and against deadly poisons. These things ye shall not do, except it be required of you by them who desire it, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. For ye shall do according to that which is written. Now, there's some interesting thoughts behind verse 13 and 14. This idea of requiring not miracles. Now, why would anyone require, or we would say demand, a miracle? Well, in the face of opposition, wouldn't that be a great way to silence your enemies? Wouldn't it be a great way to prove that they're wrong? And I love that the Lord is pulling him back, saying, no, that is not how testimony or conversion will come. Remember, faith has to precede the miracle. It's not going to come as a result. I remember hearing a general authority say years ago, if somebody joins the church because of a miracle, it'll be a miracle if they stay. And that is true. In fact, the whole list that he gives there, casting out devils, healing the sick, poisonous serpents, deadly poisons, that should bring our minds back to a promise that the Lord made back in the book of Mark, where he says, these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. You see that the Lord seems to be suggesting in section 24, think back to what I said during my mortal ministry. But how did he say it? These signs shall follow them that believe, not precede it. And so here, in the face of tribulation, opposition, persecution, don't require miracles. Don't demand them to, to shut up the enemy. You see, especially when you're being persecuted, the temptation is to prove that you're right. Wasn't that Martin Harris's problem with the, the 116 pages and with the, the, the characters taking it back east? I just got to prove it to people because I'm getting attacked. I'm getting ridiculed. Well, Oliver, don't fall into that temptation. The signs will only follow. In fact, just a couple of verses after the Lord gives that list of blessings back in Mark, he says this. And they, the apostles, went forth and preached everywhere. Just like what Oliver is being asked to do. The Lord working with them. See, I shall be with you even unto the end. And confirming the word with signs following. So two times in that brief excerpt, these signs shall follow them. And so they go out and they Preach the word with signs following. They'll receive no witness until after the trial of their faith. That way it is faith. Instead of just an, an acknowledgement of the obvious that, wow, this person really has the power of God. I think that also explains that phrase in verse 14. Don't do these things except it's required by them who desire it. And not in terms of desiring a uh, kind of a, a sign seeker but the honest and faithful who are pleading with God for the miracles that he has promised them. If someone is requesting a blessing based on their faith, then of course give it to them. I think that's what he means by the scriptures might be fulfilled. You see, there's a great verse in the book of James. It's the reason we have consecrated oil and give priesthood blessings the way that we do. He says, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. You catch that? Let him call. It's not that priesthood holders are going out and and again parading their spiritual gifts to say, well, does anyone need a blessing here? We're not going around offering our services, but we are responding to requests made in faith. Uh, To me, that's one of the important phrases that sometimes gets lost in that verse in James. Let him call for the elders. The person that's sick or afflicted, or their loved ones. That way the blessing is being pulled out of the priesthood holder by the faith of the person or people who need them rather than pushed out of the priesthood holder. It reminds me of one of an interesting moment in the Savior's ministry where a blind person comes to Jesus and Jesus asks him, What desirest thou? Now, forgive me, but of all the dumb questions, what desirest thou? I'm blind. I'll give you one good guess what I'm after. But what I love about the Lord playing dumb there is it gives this blind man an opportunity to ask, to call upon the Lord, to be humble enough to admit his own brokenness and to request a blessing that can only come from God. That's what the scriptures direct. And that's what we should be doing. Now in verse 15, in whatsoever place ye shall enter and they receive you not in my name, ye shall leave a cursing instead of a blessing. We've seen that several times in this revelation about are people open to the blessings of God? If not, well, then they've just cursed themselves. How does it take place in 15? By casting off the dust of your feet against them as a testimony and cleansing your feet by the wayside. Now this is not something we do on the front porch after somebody has slammed the door in our face as missionaries. I've read some general authorities describe this as a very rare occurrence that needs to be taken seriously. Even the way it's read at the end of verse 15, that cleansing of the feet is done by the wayside. It's like out of the sight of the person that has rejected you. This is not some kind of confrontational, in-your-face, throwing down of the gauntlet. This is simply a cleansing of ourselves. I have done what God has asked me to do this is the equivalent of Jacob shaking his garments before the Nephites I am clean of the blood of my audience because I have done what God has asked of me you see it's one thing to read that verse as ye shall leave a cursing instead of a blessing as if it was like some kind of a this is up to you to go curse them it's another thing to see ye shall leave them and as a result what is left with them well, there's no blessing, so what is it instead? It's a curse. Remember, punished by their sins. They don't have to be punished for them. And as I even cleanse the dust, it's as if I was never here. That's what happens when we dust off our feet. There, it's, it's like nothing from this area is sticking to me. And if I was never here, then the blessing I meant to offer them can't come their way. And what are they left with instead? A curse that they have brought upon themselves. You see, we leave it in the Lord's hands. Verse 16 suggests that. It shall come to pass that whosoever shall lay their hands upon you by violence. So even this, it's, it's getting to that point. Ye shall command to be smitten in my name. Now that sounds a little harsh. But who's the one that's going to be doing the smiting? Not you. Behold, I will smite them according to your words in mine own due time. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and I will repay. We see that elsewhere in Scripture. Now, I'm assuming that verse 16 is also done by the wayside, like was said in 15. This is not an in-your-face, you'll be cursed in the name of the Lord. But rather, a return and report, Heavenly Father, I couldn't help them at all. Or, Heavenly Father, this is what has been done to me, and I'm going to leave it in thy hands. trusting he will take care of them with justice, if that's what they deserve. And trust him, he will take care of you with mercy, since that is what you deserve. If 16 speaks of physical violence, 17 speaks of legal violence. And the same rules apply. Whosoever shall go to law with thee shall be cursed by the law. This is just the law of the harvest. Karma, you reap what you sow. You dug a pit for your neighbor, you'll fall into it yourself. You went to law against them, well, you'll be cursed by the law yourself. And then 18 and 19, Again, for those going forth to preach, as Oliver would do, as first preacher of the church. Thou shalt take no purse nor scrip, neither staves, neither two coats. For the church shall give unto thee in the very hour what thou needest for food and for raiment, and for shoes and for money and for scrip. You see, a purse is where you keep your money. Scrip is like a backpack. It's where you keep your stuff. You don't need any of that. Don't worry about two coats. One's going to be good enough. The church will provide for you just what you need. This is part of that labor is worthy of his hire. Again, they're not paying you, but they can feed you when you're hungry. You're offering them spiritual things. They can provide some temporal things too. I remember having great faith in that promise as a missionary. There is something to this. I'm, I'm grateful that we don't fully live verse 18 the way they did in the 19th century. But the faith that people will provide, that God will provide for you, that's something that we still need. And then verse 19, the section ends. For thou art called to prune my vineyard with a mighty pruning, yea, even for the last time, yea, and also all those whom thou hast ordained, and they shall do even according to this pattern. Amen. You see, what the Lord has been giving us in this section are patterns to follow. We might not do it exactly the way they did. And that's okay. Times change, and so our approaches change, but the pattern doesn't. See, that's the beauty of a pattern it's not meant to to produce identical replicas or something of something it's meant to show us this is how you make this and you can use this fabric or that fabric this material or that this size or that but follow the pattern and it's a beautiful pattern that the lord has described in section 24 notice also it's the pruning of the vineyard we keep talking about the field is white already to harvest but so often in terms of preparing especially when fruit is growing or or something in the vineyard. Pruning is cutting some things away. Are there things in our life that need to be pruned? Habits we need to break? Time that we're wasting in other things? Maybe it's minor things to cut out. Maybe it's major things. A mighty pruning. God, after all, is pruning the world as well. Separating sheep from goats, wheat from tares, righteous from wicked. His sharp two-edged sword is coming down and separating things. A lot of pruning is going on. Now there's one last thing I want to bring up from section 24 before we get to our, uh, our grand finale in section 25, which is such a powerful revelation. And it has to do with what we saw in section 26 about time. And in terms of this is what you devote your time to, and is that going to change, and how will the Spirit direct, and so forth. Because there's three phrases in section 24 that have a time element. And again, big picture, if we're talking about priesthood blessings, patriarchal blessings, guidance from God, timing is a factor. Is this something I'm supposed to do now or later? Will the blessings of God come now or later? No expiration date, right? But sometimes there's there's to-do list and to-do now lists. But notice these three phrases. In verse 6, there's the phrase, In the very moment. In verse 18, in the very hour. And back in verse 16, in mine own due time. Now, I put them in that order to go from shortest to longest. Some things have to happen right now, in the moment. Some things, well, not instantaneously, but pretty soon, in the very hour. And other things, take your time. Whenever the Lord gets around to it, in his due time, it will occur. And I love that the three time instances relate to three different promises what's going to happen in the very moment, what to say. And that needs to happen. Remember like junior high when somebody would rip on you and you'd think of the, the best comeback, like later that day. And you're like, ah, why didn't I say that? That would have been awesome. Well, when it comes to someone asking you a question as you're trying to share the gospel or defend the faith, those best come in the moment. And so when the Lord promises to fill our mouths when we open it, that, that needed to happen immediately. Now, what happens in the very hour? It's meeting our temporal needs. That they'll provide for you. Uh, it's not, open your mouth and it shall be filled with food. You might be a little hungry for a little while. But in the hour, you're not going to starve to death. Uh, but in the very hour when you need it, the Lord will provide for your temporal needs. And then the third level, when will, well, just when the Lord gets around to it, in mine own due time. And that's the promise that justice will be served to your persecutors. That might not even come in this life. It may come in the next. But I I think even beyond these three specific instances, knowing short-term blessings or mid-term blessings or long-term blessings, it's helpful to spread that spectrum out and have faith in God's timing as well as his will. I know that some blessings are a long time in coming other ones come much more quickly. Now that may be especially true as we turn to section 25 and realize that now we have a revelation whose audience is a woman, Joseph's beloved wife, Emma. And I say that that might be especially important for women to understand because it's something that President Irene once taught years ago in an amazing address that he called the law of increasing returns. See, he pointed out that often with men, They're in professions that have a law of decreasing returns. They get their payday, quote unquote, early on. They see some amazing results quickly. And then it starts to decline over time. Whereas so often the work of righteous women is a law of increasing returns. But that often means it's a late growing crop. It takes a long time to raise a child before you get any paydays. It takes a long time to be serving and sacrificing and blessing others. And though the ultimate reward is greater than those early crops, we sometimes have to be patient before we see them. That's going to be one of the challenges for Emma Smith and so many of the sisters like her. Will you have patience to wait on the Lord and trust in his timing? Now to introduce section 25, can I quote our beloved prophet? President Nelson said this, even before he became president of the church. Speaking to the sisters of the church, he said, Today, let me add that we need women who know how to make important things happen by their faith and who are courageous defenders of morality and families in a sin-sick world. We need women who are devoted to shepherding God's children along the covenant path towards exaltation, women who know how to receive personal revelation, who understand the power and peace of the temple endowment, women who know how to call upon the powers of heaven to protect and strengthen children and families, women who teach fearlessly. So much of that statement we will find in section 25. Because Emma was courageous. Emma did shepherd souls. Emma did teach. Emma did stand as a witness. She was every bit the equal of her husband, Joseph. In fact, full of very similar strengths and weaknesses as her husband. She had to be strong, just like Joseph did. And like we've talked before about coins with heads and tails, that strength has a flip side that sometimes you can be a little too strong about things to have confidence in yourself. But sometimes that can lead into an overconfidence of, no, I know the way it needs to be. Remember Joseph's native cheery temperament? Great blessing. And the heads of that coin is he could handle the persecution of other people without it dragging him down into the depths of depression. But the negative side? Yeah, he associated with some jovial company when he was young and kind of got into some trouble that way. On the flip side, Emma, with her tails and heads, Sometimes people will say, well, why did Emma do this? And why did she have a hard time with plural marriage? Well, you tell me why she'd have a hard time. Everyone would have a hard time. The men had a hard time with that as well. We'll talk about that when we get to section 132. And we'll talk more about Emma's reaction to plural marriage in 132. But to anyone who's concerned about Emma and her tendency on occasion to stand up against her husband, well... I'm sure Joseph was very grateful that that was the same attribute that led her to stand up to the mobs when she was being driven out of Missouri, to stand up to persecution and ridicule the moment she connected herself to Joseph Smith. I will put up with anything on the tails of Emma Smith's coin, because when you flip it over, her head is incredible. What she was asked to go through, what she endured... And what she accomplished, how she contributed, what she did with the Relief Society. I mean, it's amazing what Emma Smith did. She deserves our respect, our admiration, our appreciation. She certainly received all of that from her husband. She deserves to receive it from us as well. But I will also say this, because I don't want the men out there to tune out section 25 and go, Oh, that's just the sister section. No, this is the one that ends in verse 16 with, This is my voice unto all. And I would clarify, all includes male and female. One of my favorite classes to teach at the Institute is Women in the Scriptures. And I always introduce that course by clarifying. This is not a course about womanhood. It's not a course about becoming righteous women. It's a course about discipleship and how to truly follow the Savior Jesus Christ. The difference is our teachers are women. They're not the subject of our study. We're not studying them. We are learning from them. And I am just as content to sit at the feet of Mary and Martha as they teach me about the different sides of discipleship, both of which are positive, by the way, as I would to sit at the feet of Peter and John who have similar lessons to teach me. I'm as happy to learn from Esther as I am from Joseph of Egypt since they lived parallel lives. I'm as happy to learn from the three daughters of Oneida as I am from those three Hebrews in the fiery furnace. In fact, the female version of that story might even be more powerful than the male. We are all, male and female, trying to become like our heavenly parents. And the messages that God gives to his daughters are also intended for his sons, and vice versa. Now, with that in mind, look at section 25, verse 1. It begins with the word, hearken. I hope we remember that from section one, how the Lord opens this dispensation to its readers. We've got to learn to listen to the voice of God. And Emma would strive to learn that lesson throughout her entire life. Hearken unto the voice of the Lord, your God. I know you've chosen me, Emma. Here I'm choosing you too. While I speak unto you, Emma Smith, my daughter. And then expanding it. For verily I say unto you, all those who receive my gospel are sons and daughters in my kingdom. This is more than simply, I shouldn't even say simply, because it's incredible. This is more than being a son or daughter of God. This is being a son or daughter of Christ. Through covenant, Emma has been baptized in the midst of great persecution. To the point that she couldn't even be confirmed right afterwards. There was some time passing. She was baptized before this revelation. She was confirmed after it. But by taking upon ourselves the name of Christ, through the church of Christ, there's this set of parents that we're inheriting, right? Begotten sons and daughters unto, unto him, unto Christ. That was King Benjamin's phrase. So to be a child of the covenant, sons and daughters in Christ's kingdom. Verse 2. A revelation I give unto you concerning my will. Just like he'd done for those five men back in 23. What is God's will for me? What would he have me do? And if thou art faithful and walk in the paths of virtue before me, that's our part, then what's the Lord's part? I will preserve thy life and thou shalt receive an inheritance in Zion. Now, in the midst of all this persecution that they've been facing, again, the context of 25 is no different than the context of 24, Emma has been facing incredible danger, just like your husband had. Yeah, talk about marrying a ticking time bomb, right? Well, I will preserve thy life. And Emma's life was preserved and preserved and preserved throughout. As Joseph's in Liberty Jail, and Emma is being driven out of the state with her children and the manuscripts of the JST tucked up under her petticoat. To see what Emma went through, the promise of preservation here, on the one hand must have been comforting. On the other hand, there's this hint of it will be preserved against certain things. Be patient in afflictions, for thou shalt have many, Joseph was told. Well, here Emma is getting the same hint. And what was she asked to do to receive that blessing? Just be faithful. Stick with me. Endure with me, I will be with you, and walk in the paths of virtue. It's interesting that virtue, from its original kind of Latin etymology, speaks of manliness. Well, here, given to a daughter of God, you are meant to be just as virtuous. There's a spiritual strength there, a covenant courage, all part of this virtue that God is asking of his daughters and sons. Verse 3, Behold, thy sins are forgiven thee, and thou art an elect lady, whom I have called. The Lord had said similar things to Joseph on occasion, right? Chewed him out in section 3, called him to repentance, and yet forgave him. Thou art still called. None of us are perfect. And so I'm grateful that here the Lord can say to Emma, as I'm sure he said to her many times throughout her life, just like to her husband, Thy sins are forgiven. You are an elect lady, Elect doesn't make you better than anyone else, but it does mean that you've been chosen. In this case, you have been called. I have elected you to do certain things. Now, in electing you to do certain things, there are other things I haven't called upon you to do. And that balance is hard to strike. Verse 4, he suggests some of that difficulty when he says, murmur not because of the things which thou hast not seen. For they are withheld from thee and from the world, which is wisdom in me in a time to come. This is similar to what he said to Martin Harris in section 5. I'm not going to show you the plates. That would short-circuit the need for faith. Kind of like what we talked about with the three witnesses and compared Mary Whitmer to Emma Smith. Emma never got to see the gold plates the way Mary Whitmer did. And that must have been hard for her. Was it cause for complaint? Undoubtedly. And here the Lord is to asking her, Murmur not. Some things are withheld from thee. They're withheld from the whole world. I want you and them to learn certain lessons. It's wisdom in me. It's in a time to come. Faith precedes the miracle, and the miracle will yet come. But I need you to have time to develop faith right now. And that's true not just of seeing the gold plates. But the idea of murmuring because some things have been withheld from us That's something that we all need to wrestle with. Now, sisters, specifically, you may have certain things in mind when you think about having things withheld from thee. We might think priesthood in that vein. Is there wisdom there? We might think worldly accolades if I'm trying to spend my time raising my family. I love what President James E. Faust once taught to the sisters. Women today are encouraged by some to have it all money, travel, marriage, motherhood, separate careers in the world. For women, the important ingredients for happiness are to forge an identity, serve the Lord, get an education, develop your talents, serve your family, and if possible, to have a family of your own. However, you cannot do all these things well at the same time. Can you think back to what we talked about from section 26? You cannot be 100% wife, 100% mother, 100% church worker, 100% career person, and 100% public service person at the same time. That's way too many 100 percents. How can all of these roles be coordinated? I suggest that you can have it sequentially. That is such a key statement from President Faust. Again, it goes along with section 26. And after that, it shall be made known unto you what you shall do. What should my priority be right now? Should it be on my education? What should my priority be later? Should it be my family? What should my priority be after that? Should it be a career? And I'm not the one to say what the order should be. That, that, these are general principles coming from a general authority, for example, in President Faust you need to go to the specific authority, which is the Holy Ghost, to understand what the priority and order of sequence should be for you specifically. And along those lines, I'm so grateful for something Elder Quentin L. Cook taught, that when it comes to sisters comparing themselves to one another, that's got to stop. On the one hand, do the very best you can. And on the other, assume that everyone else is doing the same. That is so important for all of us to understand, male and female. Do your best and assume others are doing likewise. Quit feeling judged and quit judging others. Now, there's something else that applies equally to men and women as well. But it was still part of that talk that President Faust gave to the sisters. He said this. Homemaking is whatever you make of it. And don't get caught up in the word homemaking. It's more than just running a home, although that's part of it. It is teaching your children. It's raising a family. And that is every bit as much the responsibility of a father as it is for a mother, right? So as President Faust is speaking to the sisters, men, you better be listening too. He goes on, every day brings satisfaction along with some work which may be frustrating, routine, and unchallenging. Now I know all the moms out there, especially of young children, are nodding their heads. But then President Faust adds, but it is the same in the law office, that was his world, the dispensary, the laboratory, or the store. So in every profession or responsibility in life, there, it does come with a certain degree of drudgery. But then he added, there is, however, no more important job than homemaking. As C.S. Lewis said, a housewife's work is the one for which all others exist. And again, don't get tripped up over the word housewife. It also applies to househusband. And I'm not just talking Mr. Mom there. I'm talking about moms and dads in general. The work of raising a family together as equal partners. That, accomplished by both mother and father, is the work for which all other works exist. Now, please understand what I'm trying to get across here. This message is as much for the fathers as it is for the mothers, since the proclamation on the family says that they are to be equal partners in this all-important work. In those women in the scripture classes, I would often ask my male students, do you really believe what President McKay said, that no other success can compensate for failure in the home? Because if it does, it should put into perspective where your priorities ought to lie. Or President Harold B. Lee's statement, that the most important work we do will be within the walls of our own home. He wasn't only speaking to the women there. So don't just think, well, I provide and you nurture. Now, part of providing is spiritual blessings, not just the temporal ones. Remember, where do your strengths lie? It's hit me later in life when I really internalized President McKay's and President Lee's words and the proclamation on the family and everything else, that the most important things we do really are raising the next generation. Again, from C.S. Lewis, it's the work for which all other works exist. Then it hit me. Wait a minute is the quote-unquote male responsibility. Which again, we don't even have to use the genders here. Let's just use outside the home and inside the home. Maybe that's the way we need to divide things for clarity's sake. Rather than male and female, think of outside the home versus inside the home. Since both male and female are making contributions in both areas, and should be. The question for both genders is which holds the priority? The outside or the inside? Remember C.S. Lewis, the inside is the work for which all the outside work exists. I remember years ago trying to come up with an analogy that I could try to wrap my head around. And I pictured in my mind a family living long before civilization that had found shelter in a cave. That's where they made their home. And the thing that mattered most for them was their fire. They had to be able to keep that going. Outside, the wind would be howling, the storm would be raging. But inside, as long as a fire was burning, they could keep their family safe and warm. Unfortunately, fires require more fuel to keep going. And so they had to make a decision. Somebody's going to have to go out there and face those harsh elements to be able to gather the firewood and bring it back. We shouldn't both go out there because then what's going to happen to the fire here at home? Someone needs to go gather the firewood and someone else needs to guard and nurture the flame. Now at times it may be one, at times it may be the other. But but we have to understand priority. Which is means and which is ends. The ends, the work for which all other works exist, is to keep the fire burning. But unfortunately we live in an age where nurturing flame is looked down upon and what gets the glory is who can go out and amass the most wood you understand how how reverse that is from reality we live in a world that wants to say oh why even burn it the fire gets in the way it consumes the wood when all we should be doing is amassing it so everybody Parents, children, everybody go out and gather as much wood as possible to the point that we even forget what it was for. All the praise, all the honor goes to whoever can have the biggest stockpile. And those instead who recognize the value of the fire are looked down upon as if they are making no contribution. And again, I'm saying this to men as well as to women. I'm not comparing male-female right now as much as I'm comparing outside and inside work. I remember in one institute class I taught, I had the son of the stake president. And I asked him, I said, your dad has two hats. He's the stake president trying to help us spiritually, but he also has a, a temporal job trying to provide for his family. Which of those two hats do you think he prefers to wear? And he said in a, in a heartbeat, well, the church one, obviously. I mean, that he loves that one. He's been making a difference. And, he said, well, then why doesn't he just do it full time? Why wear two hats when there's only one he really wants to wear? And the obvious answer was, well, he doesn't get paid to be state president. And so he's got to put food on the table. Ah, so he has, it's almost like dividing work and glory. I, and for some of us, my work is my glory. I love it. But for many people, and I have so much respect for them, their work isn't their glory, but their work does subsidize their glory. Their work is what allows them to earn the money so that they have time to be able to dedicate to their glory. I need a weekday job since I don't get paid for my weekend job, namely my church service. And this state president's son understood that. And so it was interesting just to see, wow, so the work that's most worthwhile to him, he doesn't get paid for. But so he has to have some other job to go out. Oh, there's the gathering, the firewood. So he has something to burn, but it's it's being around the fire and rejoicing in its warmth. That's what matters most to him. Now, do you understand this analogy? Yes, male and female, there are times we all need to go out and gather firewood. But don't lose sight of its purpose, which is what happens within the walls of your own home. Does that mean some things are withheld from us? and that sometimes that withholding might cause us to murmur, I hope for any of you men out there that don't think this applies to you, I hope that you are doing things spiritually and for your family that are withholding from you some things that the world would offer. Elder Maxwell, in an amazing conference talk years ago about the tugs and the pulls of the world, drew our attention to a fascinating verse in the book of Numbers, of all places, where Balak has hired Balaam to curse Israel, and he just can't do it. And when when Balak realizes that he hired the wrong guy, he says to this so-called servant, I thought to promote thee unto great honor, but lo, the Lord hath kept thee back from honor. It was there that Elder Maxwell said, the rouge of recognition is so easily smeared anyway. But unfortunately, that is makeup that both men and women want to wear. The world's recognition. And by putting God first, by putting our families first, does that withhold from us certain honor? It does. And men should feel that withholding as much as women. Are there certain things outside the cave that you just don't have time to do because you're spending so much time with those that matter most next to the fire? I really pray this is making sense and that I'm, and that I'm being sensitive to whatever different circumstances you each might be in. There's contraries to be proven here also with male and female or outside and inside or temporal and spiritual and so on. I'm going to come back to this concept in a moment because there's another verse later on that really emphasizes it beautifully. Again, this is something that Emma's going to need to learn and that the rest of us will need to learn as well. Now, verse 5, For Emma, the office of thy calling, and she'll have many, shall be for a comfort unto my servant Joseph Smith Jr., thy husband, in his afflictions, with consoling words, in the spirit of meekness, Now, sometimes in my classes, there will be a female student that chafes under verse 5. Because it just sounds like, oh great, I'm just here as someone to support him. Which again, reverses what I'm trying to explain with that analogy of the cave. What's happening here is most important. All the outside external things are meant to support this. So if we see Joseph's work as inside the cave, I'm trying to build faith and family. Then anything you can do to support that. Go for it and vice versa, male or female, whoever's on the outside. The only reason you're out gathering wood is to provide fuel for the fire in the home. So your calling on the outside is meant for those whose callings are on the inside. And that's as true of couples or of groups, some on the outside serving to support those on the inside as it is for you by yourself as an individual. The things you do on the outside to support the things you do on the inside. In this case, there was an element of comforting in afflictions, of consoling. Now, it seems that for some people, the counsel in verse five comes a little more naturally than to others. Some people are natural empathizers, natural consolers, natural comforters. For some, it doesn't come so naturally. But if we are meek, if we can seek God's blessing then the comfort and consolation we offer people will be real. I I worry sometimes it's like, I'm supposed to be comforting, I'm supposed to be consoling. But if I don't have meekness when I'm doing it, it's not going to be comforting or consoling at all. They're going to sense that you're doing it out of obligation instead of out of love. So humble yourself, be meek, and whatever you're doing on the outside, look to those who are struggling on the inside and support and comfort and console as best you can. Now, verse 5 is Emma supporting Joseph in his callings. I love to connect that to verse 9, because there it seems that it is Joseph's responsibility to support Emma in hers. This is supposed to be an equal partnership. So I love the way he phrases this. Thou needest not fear. Sometimes we fear that our contribution isn't as important as someone else's. Sometimes we fear that we'll be neglected because the other person has so much on their plate as far as their responsibilities are concerned. But here for Emma, thou needest not fear, for thy husband shall support thee in the church. For unto them is his calling, that all things might be revealed unto them whatsoever I will according to their faith. Now, I've often shared section 25, verse 9, with the wives of new bishopric members or new stake presidency members, because so often what some people consider the first lady of the ward or the stake ends up feeling like the last lady among a sea of members that seem to be more deserving of their husband's time and attention. And that's not the case. I've often joked with, with these sweet sisters that are preparing to sacrifice so much because of the busyness of their husband's responsibilities. I'll often say to them, make sure you have the executive secretary's number on speed dial. Because there may be times that you don't feel like you can reach out to your husband and say, I need you as a husband. But you can always reach out to the ward executive secretary. Everybody else does. And schedule an appointment to have an interview with the bishop. Since you're one of his members as well. You understand the difference there? I love the way he says it in 9. Thy husband shall support thee in the church, for unto them is his calling. He's responsible for the church. And guess what? You're still a member of it. So, Emma, Joseph's stewardship is massive. No wonder he's going to need your your comfort, your consolation, as well as your counsel. We'll see that in a second. But you're also a member of that church. He's got a massive umbrella. Help him hold it, but also realize that you're underneath it too. His responsibility is as much to you as to everyone else. So you do deserve his time, his attention, his support. To me, it's a beautiful thing to watch in wards, where sometimes it's the husband that has a heavy calling and the wife is there to support, and then other times where the wife has a heavy calling and the husband is there to support her. You see, it's an equal partnership we're after, an equal partnership that prioritizes the fire within the cave. And whoever happens to be out gathering wood at any specific moment, they're doing it with the end in mind, each supporting one another. Grateful for both the temporal and the spiritual contributions that are being made. I mean, along the lines of that equal partnership, go back to verse 6. Because it's not just emotional support in verse 5, as important as that is. It's full partnership in the work of God. In verse 6, thou shalt go with him at the time of his going, and be unto him for a scribe, while there is no one to be a scribe for him, that I may send my servant Oliver Cowdery, whithersoever I will. Now, he's not talking about the Book of Mormon there. She's already done that. The Book of Mormon's finished. And yes, Emma assisted as scribe on occasion. This is more like the Joseph Smith translation, which yes, Emma will help act as scribe for as well. She was much more educated than Joseph and could contribute meaningfully in that way. And in so doing, Oliver could go do other things as well. Now verse 7, And thou shalt be ordained under his hand to expound scriptures and to exhort the church according as it shall be given unto thee by my spirit. Now, don't trip up over the word ordain. At that time, yes, it could mean priesthood ordination, but it could also mean setting apart. In fact, both of those options are even there in the 1828 Webster's Dictionary. So she's not being ordained to a priesthood office, but she is being blessed, set apart, granted power and authority to accomplish God's work. I love what President Oak said about that in his great talk about women in the priesthood. If it's the authority of God then it has to be priesthood authority because what other authority is there? It's not ordination to an office, but it is being given power and authority of God to perform his work. And for Emma, what did that work include? Expounding scripture. She wouldn't translate it, but she would explain it to people. Exhorting the church. Remember, we saw that with every smith back in section 24. Well, this smith, Emma, was called to exhort the church as well. Anything the Spirit gives you, pass it forward. Verse 8, He shall lay his hands upon thee, and thou shalt receive the Holy Ghost. Remember, she hasn't been confirmed yet. And thy time shall be given to writing and to learning much. So for her as well, there's this obtain the word and declare the word. Learn it and write it. Emma is already better educated than her husband. But the Lord doesn't pull the reins in to let her husband catch up. It's like, no, keep running. These are some of your spiritual gifts. Go and gain as much education as you possibly can. Years ago, Elder Maxwell said that we need more women who are gospel scholars and more men who are Christians. Now, whichever half of that perked up your ear lets you know which side you should be listening to. He was chastening and congratulating both genders because unfortunately, there has remained almost this stereotype in the church that the men are the scriptorians and the women are the Christians. I remember when my wife was a Relief Society president of a young married student ward and it hurt her heart sometimes to hear sisters, especially those who hadn't served missions, say things like, oh, well, I didn't serve a mission, so I don't I don't know the gospel that well. That's my husband's area. And she was like, no, there's no reason we, we don't we don't farm out that responsibility. Whether or not you served a mission, you can and should become a student of the Scriptures. You'll be teaching it your entire life. And vice versa. Men, to sit back and simply study and become experts in doctrine, what we don't actually live, or we don't actually share. Maybe this goes back to the introvert-extrovert divide, the obtain and declare divide, the male-female divide. It's not enough to learn the Gospel. Are you living it? Not enough to be a scriptorian. Are you a saint? And, and we need to cross-pollinate. We need to become both. Emma would be both in beautiful, beautiful ways. Now what we've seen from verse 5 through verse 9 about the mutual contributions of both Joseph and Emma to each other. You support him. He supports you. Again, equal partners in all of this. That is easier said than done. Especially when you have the world whispering, actually shouting at you that firewood is more important than fire. That outside successes not only compensate for failures in the home, but in fact shouldn't be withheld you because of all that time you're supposed to be spending on lesser things. No, those are the greater things. And verse 10, if we can internalize it, will help open our hearts to that all-important reality verse 10 verily I say unto thee that thou shalt lay aside the things of this world and seek for the things of a better honestly if we're struggling with murmuring like we saw back in verse 4 then spend more time working towards verse 10 because so often it's the world's opinion of things that makes us feel bad about what we're doing in the home It's the world's way of comparing things, of getting you to compete over certain issues. And what's the Lord asking us to do? Lay them aside. It's about the fire, not the firewood. It's about the inside, not the outside. It's the glory, not the work. So just let the work subsidize the glory. But know where your priorities should lay. When I lived in Tennessee, it's the south, And the national religion of the South isn't evangelical Christianity. Yes, it's the Bible Belt. But the real national religion of the South is football. And I remember explaining this analogy to my students. And it was fun to watch how excited they got about it. I asked them to do this. I said, picture the game of football. You know the sport. They're like, oh yeah, hallelujah. Uh, I want you to change not a single rule, but I do want you to change the nature of victory. In other words, we're going to alter the definition of success in football. And I just want to ask you how you'd change the way you play the game. You, you with me? And like, I think. said, well, you know how like on, on the stats sheet at the end, it'll talk about uh, offensive yards and turnovers and how many rushing yards and passing yards and all these kinds of tons of statistics. I kind of geek out and, and, and I'm interested in all of that. But to me, one that is always fascinating is time of possession. It just shows out of an hour, how much time did this team have the ball and how much time did that team have the ball? And so I said, right now, the definition of victory in a football game is points scored. And none of the other statistics matter. I mean, they're interesting, but it doesn't matter. You could be superior to your opponent in every single statistical category. But if you didn't score as many points as they did, you lost the game. Sorry. Well, what if we changed the definition of success from points scored to time of possession? Now, think about that. It doesn't matter how many points you have or how many you don't have. If you had the ball for 30 minutes and one second, which means the other team had the ball for 29 minutes and 59 seconds, you win. The scoreboard is beside the point. It's all about the clock. And how much time did you have the ball? Now, do you understand that's how we're defining victory? They're like, yeah. I said, okay, now we're not going to change any rules. How would the game change? And it was so fun to watch the wheels start turning. Things like, oh, wait a minute. Um, I don't think I'd ever throw the ball because an incompletion stops the clock, and I want the clock to be running constantly. So I would only run. I would never go to the sideline because when you go out of bounds, the clock stops. So I'm going to be running. And I said, well, how much are you going to run? And they said, oh, good point because I don't want to get a first down, at least not yet. In fact, the big picture, the end zone is my enemy because. I have to give the ball to the other team. So I don't want to score. But here's the problem. I do have to keep getting first downs. Because if I, if I don't, then I give the ball up that way too. So I, I, yes, I always want to get first down, but never on first down. I hope you understand enough about football for this to make sense, by the way. Those of you in foreign countries, I apologize. But I want to get first down on fourth down. So basically, I'm never going to pass. I'm only going to run the ball, and I want to get 2.5 yards every carry with a whole lot of lateral movement, okay? Maybe backfield, and I'm just going back and forth. And eventually, if, as long as I can get to that first down marker on fourth down, then I can keep playing. But I, but I want to stop right after I get to it because, again, the end zone is my enemy. It was so fun to watch these students. I mean, they really got into it. I think they forgot they were an institute, and now they're just they're, they're talking their, their favorite pastime. But the point I was trying to make for them and for you is that even without changing a single rule, I can completely change the nature of the game, the way you play it, if I redefine victory in different terms. Now, what does that have to do with Section 25 or the Gospel at all? Everything. Because over time, the world has redefined victory and it has changed the way we play the game. We have gone from the F's to the P's because what is victory like now? Here's the P's. Pleasure, power, praise, prosperity and preeminence. And what did it used to be? The F's. Faith and family. You see, the adversary didn't have to change the rules of the game at all. He simply knew that if he could get us to focus on a different goalpost, we'd change the game ourselves. And if faith and family are not the priority, if that's not what spells success, if that can happen and he can get us to focus on fame and fortune instead of faith and family, if it's all about prosperity and popularity and pride and pleasure, then we're going to change the game ourselves. And we are we're not playing it the way God intended, because we care too much about how the world defines success. I was laughing to myself the other day, because I was invited by an old high school friend, hadn't talked to her in, I don't know, 30 years or something, and uh, she asked me to come and do a, a Zoom fireside for her ward. So I did. She's the bishop's wife, and she's supporting him in his calling as he supports her in hers. But uh, she she was introducing me and said some things about, you know, back in the day, I was very grateful for her selective memory. But she said something along the lines of, oh, Jared this and Jared that, I mean, I'm sure that he won most likely to succeed in high school, and then went on. But it was funny, because it did remind me, wait a minute, I did. And at the time, I thought that was really cool. Time has given me a better perspective on that. But what I laugh most about that is what did my high school peers assume success would look like. They probably thought I'd be rich and famous someday. I actually had some friends say, I will pay for your college applications if you'll go to an Ivy League school. Don't throw your brain away by going to some school your church runs. But to me, I was laser focused on gospel first and I thought BYU is the place to do it. Since then I have learned, I'm at the University of Utah now, I've learned that rivalries are overstated or overblown and that you can learn and live the gospel wherever you happen to go to school. I thank heaven for the institute program. BYU does not have a corner on the market on spirituality among young adults. But at the time as a high school kid it was BYU or bust. But this is where the irony comes in. Because those who voted me most likely to succeed, if they could see me now, would probably scratch their head and wonder, that did not turn out the way we thought. Because they were defining success, most likely, with fame and fortune, prosperity, prestige. And instead, I opted for the life that Elder Packer described for religious educators as one of obscurity and poverty. Bring it on. Well, what's interesting to me is to see I'm not playing that game. You're going by points scored, and I'm going by time of possession. You're after fame and fortune. I'm after faith and family. How do you define success? Or who do you let define it for you? Back to verse 10 Lay aside the things of this world and the definitions of victory that they are saddling us with. Seek for the things of a better. Define yourself through the Lord's eyes. Look in his magic mirror. You elect ladies and men. You sons and daughters in God's kingdom. And there will be so much less temptation to murmur about things that have been withheld you for putting the Lord first. As President Packer once taught, it is the understanding of almost everyone That success to be complete must include a generous portion of both fame and fortune as essential ingredients. The world seems to work on that premise. The premise is false. It is not true. The Lord taught otherwise. You understand that? Take your pick. The world's premises or the Lord's promises. Which sound more loudly in your ears. It puts into such perfect perspective something that Sister Margaret D. Nadal taught years ago. And though she was addressing the women, this incredible quote, well known in the church, applies to the men just as much. She said, Women of God can never be like women of the world. The world has enough women who are tough. We need women who are tender. There are enough women who are coarse. We need women who are kind. There are enough women who are rude. We need women who are refined. We have enough women of fame and fortune. We need more women of faith. We have enough greed. We need more goodness. We have enough vanity. We need more virtue. We have enough popularity. We need more purity. In some ways, I don't know a better way to summarize section 25 than that. Now, thankfully, it's not yet over. Verse 11, he continues to Emma, It shall be given thee also to make a selection of sacred hymns, as it shall be given thee, which is pleasing unto me to be had in my church. Interesting that twice it speaks of giving thee. I guess some things are being withheld, verse 4. Other things are being given thee, verse 11. I'm giving you a calling to create a hymn book, and I will give you insight and inspiration on what hymns to include. In fact, she took that calling so personally. And Joseph took it personally for her. At one point, if I remember the story correctly, when Brigham Young was leading the British mission among the apostles, and the saints were staying there for a while, and so they wanted to be able to sing hymns as well. And so Brigham Young created a hymn book there. And when Joseph found out about it, he was angry. No, Brigham, hymn books are Emma's department. That is something that will not be withheld her because it was given her. Brigham had some explaining to do. Oh, sorry, I wasn't trying to step on Emma's toes. It's just, we're here, you're there in the States. I'm here in, the, in England. Anyway, they, they smoothed things over and worked things out. But an amazing gift given to Emma because God wanted sacred hymns because sacred music is pleasing to him. And of course the Lord loves music. Look around. And he filled this world with sound. Verse 12 explains it so beautifully. For my soul delighteth in the song of the heart. Yea, the song of the righteous is a prayer unto me, and it shall be answered with a blessing upon their heads. Notice, by the way, to all of you non-singers out there, or non-musicians, it's the Lord's soul that delights, not just his ears. And it's the song of the heart, not necessarily the song of the mouth. If you have perfect pitch, great. But if you can't carry a tune in a wheelbarrow, as long as your heart is there, then God's soul is there too. Hebrew J. Grant was like that in terms of the can't carry a tune in a wheelbarrow. There's a story told of him that he was taking voice lessons because he wanted desperately to learn how to sing. He was taking voice lessons and the, the, his teacher's office was in the same building as a dentist's office. And as he was trying to work on his scales, somebody, people, people in the building thought that the dentist was drilling on someone's cavity it sounded like someone was howling in pain another singing teacher said to him i I really do think that you can learn to sing i would just prefer to be miles away while you're trying another story this is one of my favorites is when heber j grant and jay golden kimball so you know it's going to be a good story already they were on a a, like a state conference trip or some kind of assignment and they were riding horseback to go to this place where they had to speak and on the way uh, elder grant said to elder kimball do you mind if I sing 100 hymns on the way down? And B- Elder Kimball must have thought he was joking because he was like, sure, be my guest. And like after a dozen or so, Jay G- Golden Kimball says to Heber J. Grant, I swear if you sing the rest of these, I will die from nervous prostration. It's like I'll have a nervous breakdown if you keep singing. And President Elder Grant was like, no, you agreed. You said I could, so I'm going to hold you to it. Now, this is not just dogged determination on... Heber J. Grant's part, though he did have dogged determination. I mean, he he practiced his whole life to try to learn to sing. Somebody once asked him, why are you so adamant that you have to learn to sing? And drawing upon section 25, verse 12, he simply said, because I want to be able to pray like that. There's something about music that is the song of the heart. It's like you go from prose to poetry and from poetry to music, and you are climbing the scales to speak or sing with the angels. Remember how that toughened, battle-hardened soldier Mormon talked about the next life? He just dreamed of joining the choirs above. I love that. It's like the toughest guy on the football team goes and joins the choir instead because he just wants to sing. That was Mormon. So often in the book of Revelation, it is song, that is describing the premortal existence and describing the post-mortal celestial kingdom too. If all you can offer is your heart, then Jesus listening can hear the songs I cannot sing. In fact, perhaps even more personally, he'll provide the singing himself. Remember before he goes into Gethsemane? What do he and his apostles do? They sing a hymn. Now, one of, to me, the most sacred moments I had in my five months of studying abroad in Israel was a time, we, we had concerts all the time. The Jerusalem Center is magnificent. And the, the upper auditorium, where you'd have a sacrament meeting with all of their, these open windows to view the old city across the valley. It's also where all kinds of concerts were held. Some for the public, some for us as students in the Jerusalem Center. And I remember at one of them, just having the clearest impression of the Lord's love of music. Now I knew that from section 25, verse 12. But what struck me that time, being in the land that he made holy, was picturing in my mind, what would it be like to hear Jesus sing? You ever been with somebody that's about to sing and you have no idea what it's going to sound like, and then when they open their mouth, such majestic power comes out of it that you are blown away. Well, we are so used to picturing Jesus speaking and healing and blessing and doing all of those things. But can you imagine the Savior singing? Would it be a deep bass? Would it be a rich baritone? Would it be one of those high, clear tenors singing, comfort ye my people in Handel's Messiah? Can you imagine that? Can you envision what it would feel like to hear him sing. Well, there in Jerusalem, I tried to put that feeling into words. And please forgive me for my lack of poetic talent. But there, as a 22-year-old kid, this is the closest I could come up with. When Heavenly Father sent to earth his son to be its king, he also sent down for the birth a heavenly choir to sing. The baby Jesus must have heard those carols from on high and felt the love in every word of Mary's lullaby. Years later, in an upper room, the light of hope grew dim. The twelve could sense the coming doom and sang with Christ a hymn. From humble birth with chorus grand to final road so long, the Savior came to understand the power of a song. Throughout my life, I too have found the power songs impart. Each time my ear can hear the sound of music from the heart. So when life's journey I complete and join the heavenly throng, I'll kneel before the Savior's feet and ask to hear his song. He said his sheep would hear his voice, familiar it would ring, but more than spoken word, my choice, would be to hear him sing. The voice which Mary recognized when eyes were blurred with tears would more than worldly wealth be prized if heard by mortal ears. The Savior's song, what would it be if Christ could choose the melody, The sound so pure would long endure in heart and memory. The voice which called the children near, the voice which deaf were made to hear, if raised in song, would echo long in every listening ear. Would he sing of forgiveness, of mercy and love? Would his song help us follow his plan? Would we know that the music had come from above if performed by the Savior of man? Because the world is full of strife, its view of Christ is blurred, So when I think about his life, I wish I could have heard the Savior's song. The Savior's song, what would it be if sung inside Gethsemane? The sound, the cry, would testify of his love for you and me. The voice of the Atoning One, the voice which said, Thy will be done. Should Jesus sing each living thing, would praise God's greatest Son? Would he sing of our sorrows, our pains and our fears? Would his song be of tears that he wept? If it rang through the night, would it find listening ears as his friends nearby quietly slept? I pray that some day I may gain a view of what occurred. For when I think about his pain, I wish I could have heard the Savior's song. The Savior's song, what will it be when once again his face I see? The sound so grand as I hold his hand and bow on bended knee. The voice which speaks to man today, the voice I seek each time I pray, each simple chord known by the Lord would majesty convey. I used to believe only when I'd return to His presence would I hear His song. But now as I listen, I think I have learned I've been hearing Him sing all along. For when we sing with voice and heart, the Savior's voice we hear. The Spirit sets the tune apart and whispers in our ear that Christ himself needs not to send the notes nor sing a word. For now, when song and spirit blend, I realize I've heard the Savior's song. I am so grateful for the man behind that music. With Mormon, I want to find my place among the choirs above, not just so that I can raise my voice in praise, but so that I can hear the Savior sing, In return, talk about a prayer unto the Father that would be answered with a blessing upon all of our heads. I hope we appreciate the power of music. I hope we sing with heart and not just voice. As is said in that beautiful old Christian hymn, how can I keep from singing? Or as Alma taught us in Alma 5, if you have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, can you feel so now? Let that feeling infuse every song you sing, and you will be among Earth's heavenly choir of angels. Well, the Lord then ends this revelation to Emma with the following verses. Verse 13, Wherefore, lift up thy heart and rejoice. Cleave unto the covenants which thou hast made, We're so far away from the thought of murmuring back in verse 4 now. The Lord has weaned us off of those worldly feelings. Now I just want to rejoice. My heart has been lifted up. I want to cleave to the covenants. Cleave is such an interesting word. Remember in that, that marriage in the Garden of Eden. For this shall a man leave his mother and father and cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. To cleave means to stick together. But also if you have a meat cleaver... It's to chop something. It's to divide in half. It's one of the few words that has two meanings that are exact opposites of one another. But that should tell us something about cleaving and cleaving. We sometimes talk about marriage being two becoming one. But if cleave to divide and then cleave to rejoin, it's not two becoming one. It's two halves becoming the whole again. It's Adam receiving his rib back. It's that this cleaving, and to here it's cleaving to covenants. Yes, in marriage we may leave mother and father to cleave unto spouse, but we never have to leave heavenly parents and the covenants with them that we should always cleave to. Talk about at-one-ment. Cleaving to our covenants does truly make us one with God. Verse 14, continue in the spirit of meekness. And beware of pride. Let thy soul delight in thy husband and the glory which shall come upon him. Now, the beginning of that verse, continue in the spirit of meekness. Remember the end of verse 5? To do this in the spirit of meekness. Both 5 and 14 have to do with husband and wife relationships and meekness being required in both. And this isn't just the wife being meek towards the husband, it's the husband being meek towards the wife. In both instances, that will require an overcoming of pride. So that's the advice here in verse 14 also. And this idea of your soul delighting in your spouse. And again, it has to go in both directions. Because as you rejoice in the glory that comes upon them, with no pride and all meekness, then he or she can rejoice in the glory that comes upon you as well. Because that's what the Lord gets at in verse 15. Keep my commandments continually and a crown of righteousness thou shalt receive. Except thou do this, where I am you cannot come. Now that last line should put things in perspective. Where I am, where is that? It's not just a location, it's a lifestyle. It's not just salvation or immortality, it's now eternal life. Not just the duration of his life, but the degree of of his life, the type of life that he lives, which is an eternal union between male and female. We have heavenly parents. I have a mother there. And what I love about this idea of, you can't come to where I am, the highest degree of the celestial kingdom, unless there are husband and wife inseparably connected, rejoicing in one another, supporting one another, meekness towards one another no pride leading to enmity against one another remember that's what president benson said pride is enmity enmity is competition enmity is is oppositionality between people that should be one it's cleaving in the wrong way instead of cleaving in the right way and if you want to be with me and be like me then both husbands and wives have to figure out section 25 and live according to its principles You see here, for the wife, for Emma, what she promised, a crown of righteousness. And at the end of section 121, which we typically associate as a priesthood section, what's the promise there? A scepter of righteousness. Well, who gets crowns and scepters? Kings and queens do. Kings and queens in the kingdom of God, among God's daughters and sons no woman will ever get a crown unless her husband is beside her with his scepter and no man will receive a scepter unless his wife beside him is wearing a crown only then can we be where god is can we come into his kingdom and for any of you who are looking to the throne beside you and seeing an empty seat rest assured that God has every blessing in store for you as you continue faithful in this life. As Joseph Smith himself said to mothers who had lost their children, so can it be said to anyone who is faithful and feels like a potential blessing has been lost to them. Joseph said, all your losses will be made up to you in the resurrection. By the power of the Almighty, I have seen it. So don't see an empty throne alongside you. See it filled with the blessings that God is promising you as you are faithful. To them and to all of us, he then can conclude in verse 16. Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is my voice unto all. Amen. This is the message we all need to hear. It's one we need to embrace. It's one we need to be able to explain to people. President Kimball, in one of the most famous quotes to women of the church, said this, and I think again it applies as much to the men, but he said that much of the major growth that is coming to the church in the last days will come because many of the good women of the world will be drawn to the church in large numbers. This will happen to the degree that the women of the church reflect righteousness and articulateness in their lives. And to the degree that the women of the church are seen as distinct and different in happy ways from the women of the world. I've always loved that quote. The distinction, the difference in happy ways. Again, laying aside the things of the world. Seeking for the things of a better. Not just a different. Like, I shouldn't murmur, this is what God wants me to do. No, it's better than what the world is offering. God's definition of victory is truly victorious. But to embrace that to reflect that reality. But I've always been struck by his use of the word articulateness. Now, to be articulate seems to be to be eloquent. And so I used to read that thinking, okay, President Kimmel wants the women of the church to be eloquent. Eh, Maybe. I mean, he doesn't want Emma to to learn much, to write, and, and nothing quite helps you learn the power of language by having to write a lot. But I think there's more to that. Articulateness, to me, can also simply mean, are you able to articulate? Are you able to explain, to expound, to exhort? Can you help people see what you see and the joy that you feel in seeing it? We are playing a different game. We have rejected the world's premises in order to embrace the Lord's promises. And I pray that we can explain that to people in such a way that they will come and share our perspective. What is it that you're looking at? And as we describe this kingdom of God in which we can all become kings and queens together, that is a breathtaking description. See it with us. Build it with us. Sing about it with us. For once you see it as we do, how can you keep from singing?